VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, December the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. So welcome to the winter solstice, also known as the hibernal solstice. Shortest daylight day of the year, longest dark night of the year. Now, the solstice itself only happens for a brief moment, and I think it's at 11.57 this evening, but it's really just in reflection of the day of which it occurs, very much like the June or the summer solstice. Only takes place for a moment, but on the 20th or the 21st would be that particular case. And uh, what happens today is the Earth's poles reach its maximum tilt away from the sun. So the winter solstice here. Some people refer to it as the beginning of winter. And winter it is in many parts of the province. Boy, the weather on the southwest coast and the west coast of the island this morning is pretty brutal. See some of the recorded amounts of rainfall? Saw Eddie Shear tweet out that in Bergio, as of I think it was early this morning, 198 millimeters of rain had fallen. Now some of those areas are seeing the heavy rain move into heavy snow. There's some forecasted uh, snowfalls like 45, 60 centimeters, ice pellets. So obviously treacherous conditions out on the western and south southwestern portion of the island so please if you have to be on the roads be super careful and of course you wonder how many people will be impacted by the cancellations of marine atlantic crossings you know, whether it be going from here to wherever you're from on the mainland or visiting some in-laws or what have you, or people are trying to return home for the Christmas season and looking at that weather and wondering whether or not they're going to get here in time. But let's hope they do indeed. A couple of quick ones. So it was on this date in 1891, the first game of basketball based on the rules created by Canadian James Naismith, played by 18 students in Springfield, Massachusetts. All right. One of the great visuals of the year, while we await for the winning team to be given the Stanley Cup, is when the two teams that have fought tooth and nail through the most arduous competition in this world is to win 16 games in the NHL to win the Cup. So what do they do after all of that blood, sweat, and tears has been left on the ice? The buzzer goes, and they slide up down the middle of the rink, and they shake hands. And it has long been a feature of minor hockey. Here's an email that came from HNL to all of the minor hockey associations. I'll read it so we don't get any of it confused or mixed up. This is from HNL. We've had some issues with handshakes following games that have led to suspensions for players and coaches. The decision has been made to eliminate the end-of-game handshakes. Instead, prior to the game, the home team will go to their bench, the visiting team will skate by the bench and do a glove-tap handshake like they do after a score goal, wishing the home team a good game. Following the game, both teams will be directed to their dressing rooms by officials. This should be in effect for all games following the Christmas break. Please ensure all teams are aware of this change. It's really unfortunate. You know, when you look at the sport of, say, for instance, rugby, when the final whistle goes, they're all gentlemen and men. The handshakes and the hugs and the congratulations and the good game, and we'll see you next time. Exchanging jerseys. In hockey, to line up down the middle of the rink really does display what the sport is truly all about. The game is played hard between the opening face-off and the final buzzer. But at that point, it's really time for those life lessons to be learned. It's extremely unfortunate. Now, this is not new. Fights have happened after the game many times. As many scraps as I was in, I don't think I ever got into one after the final buzzer or on the handshake line. So, you know, 
whether or not coaches have to do a better job of discipline, whether or not there's got to be these types of conversations with your players that when the final buzzer goes, that's it. As much as it's an emotional game, as much as you wanted to win and maybe came up short, there's no need for this kind of stuff. It's not for me to say what H&L should do, but I wonder was there any consideration given to put out this email that says in no uncertain terms if the coaches or the players get involved in a post-game handshake racket you're suspended for the rest of the season i'm pretty sure that would put an end to anybody's want or will to have a slash at somebody or to throw a punch you know you're always going to get some curses and stuff exchanged in the handshake line but there should be no physical altercations so this is a real shame because inside of organized sport and or individual sport it's not just about uh, competing and trying to amp up your skills and to polish up your team working to try to win a game or win a championship it's also really critically important to understand how to learn to lose and yes it's hard on mom and dad or caregivers or nana pop to console the losing hockey player on the way home but that's just part of it and so when it erupts in rackets or scraps or fights or slashes or whatever happens to see these suspensions for player coaches but there you go. That's really too bad. Anyway, probably not the biggest deal for many, but inside the world of sport, it's those types of realizations. When it's over, it's over. As many fellas that I had fights with, we were at each other from the time we played Adam right through Junior. When I see those guys around now, we're the best of buddies. And that's the way it should be. Even after some really difficult games playing Junior, for instance, maybe you go out for a pop after the game and you see the guy that you just spent a few minutes on the ice in a bit of a tussle, no big deal. So, anyway, that's really unfortunate. So, we've been talking about the issue regarding the supply of power a lot. Now, Hydro has said, even with two of the three turbines down, the turbine at Stephenville down, and some concerns that remain at Hardwoods and Muskrat Falls, whatever, Hydro says they do indeed have the power to meet the demand this winter. Now, the PUB, given the fact that the news has broke, that two of the three turbines are down at Holyrood, the one that's in operation is operating at less than half capacity, about 70 megawatts. So now the PUB is asked for more detailed information from Hydro about these supply uh, issues. I think consumer advocate Dennis Brown really put it quite well here on this front. Mr. Brown says people should be alert, not alarmed. That's a pretty apt way to refer to this because, again, nobody wants to be the person who scares the you-know-what out of folks as we lead into the cold winter temperatures and the wind-cold temperatures. So the PUB looking for detailed information from Hydro on that front. Let's get into the RFP world. All right. It was back in May of 2021 that the PERC team and Moya Green, leading that Premier's economic recovery team, submitted their report to the provincial government, and there was a lot in it. And we saw it. It was publicly released in full. And one of the issues was talking about divesting in a variety of fronts, oil and gas stakes, or I guess simply oil stakes at this point, the NLC, Bull Arm, Marble Mountain, what have you. Now... The uh, province is moving forward on RFP with the possibility of selling or leasing the Bull Arm Fabrication Site. It's about a 25-square-kilometer site out in Trinity Bay. It's the largest of its kind in Atlantic Canada. So, again, when some of the confusion has been brought to bear because of RFPs and the letting of contracts, the quote from the government says, All proposals are assessed in a fair and transparent manner. So, Bull Arm now out there on the block. So, it's been operated by the Bull Arm Fabrication Incorporated for the last little while. Now, on behalf of the province. So, let's see where that goes. But, 
you know, maybe I'm in the minority thinking about all of those massive recommendations made by the Parks Group, and very little, to our knowledge, has been followed through on. You know, they talked about transitioning away from a full reliance on oil, and I guess some of that is happening with the green hydrogen proposals and what have you, but there's a lot left on the table with that potential green report recommendations of whether or not anything else beyond bull arm is going to be in play. So they're moving forward with that, but I know, again, I'm probably in the minority, but I'd like to think that we should talk about those issues, put it back on the front burner for our politicians to consider. All right, another RFP. You can go back and get audio clips of uh, justice ministers and other politicians and premiers talking about replacing Her Majesty's Penitentiary for the last couple of decades. And again, whether or not there's political upside to replacing that dungeon, and I don't think there really is, I think in the calculation of what can we do, what can we announce, what can we focus on to ensure that more people are looking at our policies and giving us a thumbs up and consequently an X on the ballot. The pen, eh. But here we go. So they're going back out now with another RFP for what looks like and sounds like a smaller facility than was initially uh, considered by Avalon Corrections Partners. So they've been working on the building and design. It's about 30% complete. It remains in the hands of government, government's intellectual property. So they had an estimated price tag of about $200 million. The, soared, the cost soared to somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million. The government talked about what they call their affordability ceiling, had grown to some $325 million, but back out there we go. So as opposed to try to rejig the current operations with the consortium that's working on the plan, they're going back to the very beginning of the process. Now, you can hear from Jerry Earle or Cindy Murphy at the John Howard Society or anybody who has anything to do with the happenings inside the walls of that penitentiary is simply not good enough. And I know you're probably sick of hearing that, but if they come out worse than they went in, it's a collectively bad for everybody listening to this program and everyone in the community. So even when this RFP process goes through and the contract is let, you know, it's going to be construction starting in 2025, take three or four years to build. They're talking about enhancing programs right now using outbuildings or trailers for recreation or visitation or other services and rehabilitation. But in, in addition to this incredible delay, the province has spent apparently some $4 million based on access to information uh, put forward by, I think it was Rob Angelo over at the CBC. $4 million spent on something that hasn't even seen a shovel in the ground. I mean, again, sometimes you just have to scratch your head and wonder where the priorities lie, but that delay is certainly of concern. What do you think? And inside the walls of the penitentiary, the RNC are now starting an investigation into the circumstances that led up to the death of 35-year-old Seamus Flynn. So what initially, we were talking about that he died suddenly when he was being transferred to the hospital. But now this is a much different flavor. It's all based on a report coming from the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. So now, the RNC says, it's circumstances leading up to. So there was allegations put forward by a variety of inmates regarding the beatdown they took at the hands of correctional officers, the injuries they suffered. I don't know exactly the veracity or the merit of all of these allegations, but there was some sort of altercation. So now with this investigation taking place, it's probably a good thing, right? You know, no matter what people think about those who are incarcerated, the fact of the matter is that we've had two deaths. We have a number of deaths inside the walls of prisons in this province by suicide and or for some other unknown reasons, including the death in August and the circumstances leading up to Mr. Flynn's death. So the RNC have now moved forward with instigating their own investigation. So there'll be three independent investigations ongoing concurrently, the RNC, the chief medical examiner, and this was also in the hands of the uh, province's citizens representative, Bradley Moss. So there you go. 
go. All right, this might be a real townie-related matter, but I think it's got an interesting impact regardless of where you drive normally. So there's been an assessment over the last five years of the collision data that has released the city's list of the most dangerous intersections. And again, I know this is hypertownie, but I'll get to the other point. So Goldstone Street at Thorburn and Seaborn, total of 43 collisions, 35% injury rate. Higgins Line to Cove Road in Newfoundland Drive, another wicked spot. Rollins Cross. Rollins Cross is an interesting case study because the accident was way down when they put it into some roundabout fashion, but concerns of pedestrians and cyclists and the like, they went back to the way it operates today with the stoplights and what have you. So I won't go through the list of collisions, but in that five-year period, there were 6,566 reported collisions. 47% of those were at intersections at a higher chance of resulting in industry, uh, injury. 354 pedestrian and 69 cyclist-related reported collisions in town. When we talk about national average stuff, in terms of the national average, the city has a 3.3% average annual fatal collisions per 100,000 population. National average is 4.7% and the provincial average is 6.7%. So they're going to have to do some work to uh, deal with configuration or reconfiguration of some of these sites, intersections. But what I think is not inside the report, because this is not the focus of the people who conducted this evaluation of the collision data, a lot of the responsibility and a lot of these collisions are avoidable because the driver's behavior is just too reckless and aggressive. So that absolutely is a big part of this. But here's where I think it kind of extends to people in other parts of the province. And this is exactly opposite of what I thought they would find. Environmental conditions. 61% of the collisions happened when the weather was fine. 18% took place during overcast weather, 10% when it was raining, and 7% when it's snowing. Now, I guess I didn't anticipate hearing those types of numbers, but I guess when you step back and think about it, when it's snowing or raining or overcast, people are more likely to drive uh, accommodating the weather and to be a bit more cautious. And when it's nice out, it's press the loud pedal with your right foot as hard as you can, as quick as you can, as long as you can. So I didn't anticipate those environmental impacts, but I guess when you sit back, it makes a bit of sense. All right, this is the touchdown I did with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey off the top of the show, talking about some of the issues we were going to broach today. And this one, you know, like Crownlands. Crownlands have long been a concern here in the province. They absolutely have. We have a disjointed, two-armed approach to Crownland administration, and something has to change. And we all know the, uh, squatters' rights that changed back in 76. Then it always takes one captivating family story to bring a new hyper-focus to any issue, including Crownlands. And this one is about Randy and Pauline Diamond out in Catalina. So they went to sell their home after there was a, a medical diagnosis for Pauline, and they want to move to a smaller, more accessible apartment to downsize. You know, inevitable for many families. So they go to sell, and they had a buyer all set up. And then lo and behold, Crown Land steps in and says, you don't own the property. And so three years later, they have finally reached a settlement. As opposed to go through the long process and the costly process in the courts that could cost thousands and thousands of dollars and no guarantee of a victory, so they made a settlement and they ended up buying the land for $10,000. Now they've made the sale and they're going to move ahead with their life. And I'm sure their sense of relief is very real for the diamonds. But even Greg French, real estate lawyer from Clarenville, who we've had on this program, he is our go-to voice on the Crown Lands issues. He's been very helpful and informative on that file. 
He says there's going to be untold numbers of people in the province who are in the exact same circumstance, but until they go to sell, they won't be aware that just what happened to the diamonds maybe happens to them. So going through the quieting of titles and to go through a real return to get the sale and then Crown Land steps in, it's unbelievable. I don't really understand the hesitancy of the provincial government to acknowledge what we all know is that the way Crown Lands are operated is simply not working. The policy should be in the best interest of the population. Not what's easy for politicians. So when things changed back in 1976, you know, there was a change in the tune, a minor change, when we talk about the proof that the land had been occupied during the 20 years prior to 1976. The Diamonds had the proof through affidavits that that exactly was the case for them, but the province wouldn't accept them. So they ultimately had to go down the settlement road and come up with $10,000 to move forward. So when PC member for exploits, Pleman Forsey, tabled a private member's resolution and it was voted down, okay, so that's kind of the inner machinations of politics, but can the province, in no uncertain terms, say out loud, we know it's broken and we are determined to fix it? Because just imagine what happened to the diamonds if it happens to thousands of people, which is going to be the case. You know, when we look at aging, demographic, and otherwise, people want to sell regardless of your 45 or 65 because you want to downsize or move closer to family or closer to health care or whatever the case may be. So, uh, Mr. French, if you'd like to chime in this morning and talk about the process just with your own clients being the diamonds, and I think he has 11 other files on his desk as well on this exact issue. All right. If you want to look back at the K-12 first half of the school year on any angle, we're up for that this morning. And if you want to chime in on the equalization issue, I tried to break it down as best I could the other day. The fact that we are, quote unquote, a have-not province again, first time since 2008, $218 million coming to the province. People might look at it through the lens of, uh, oh, no, the feel good of being a have and a net contributor to the country is a bad thing. And or if you want to talk about the economical realities that have led to that uh, change for the equalization formula. And if you want to talk about the formula itself, I tried to bring in the province of Quebec and their whopping big price tag of $13.1 billion in equalization flowing their way. And what I think is a direct relationship with the upper Churchill. But the provinces that are on equalization, and there have been three very minor changes, but I don't think the formula is necessarily working. So PEI, Nova Scotia. New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, and us. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to your calls. So we know that there's many people out there, many organizations that are trying to raise money and or food hampers or different levels of support for the holiday season in particular. The Community Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador is also putting forward the plea for your fundraising dollars because what they're trying to do is bring in Newfoundland and Labrador's first temporary shelter model unit. We've talked about this particular option in the past. It looks like a repurposed shipping container. It's not exactly that. You know, it has a bed and a desk and what have you inside and a window on the front door. It may be not ideal for long term for, you know, people that were beyond singles necessarily. So they're hoping that you'll choose them to make a donation. So it's called the Now Housing Demo Model. It's an eight by 13 by nine, nine, six, lockable and standalone. Includes heated, it's, pardon me, it's heated, a bed, a fridge, a table, and shelving. So they're actually in operation in Peterborough and Waterloo, Ontario. The cost of each unit is $21,500 plus credit card processing fees for donations. 100% of the donations to the phone will support the purchase of the unit. So you can go to their page here. I can share the details. Where's the contact information here? Da, 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 da. Okay, so this, the telephone number, if you'd like to find out more, is 709-753-9899. 
and the last one before your call. So let's get a busy show going here this morning. I haven't got it in before. Last, second last show of the year. So today, VOCM partnering with Canadian Blood Services for their annual blood drive. It's happening today at Canadian Blood Services on Wicklow Street between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. You can visit blood.ca or call 1-888 to donate. So today we partner up with Canadian Blood Services to try to get as much in the in the system as we can. Okay, let's see. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Uh, Josh Taylor's in the queue. He wants to talk about house design. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing great, man. I got to say, I've been enjoying the show lately. I still listen mostly on podcasts which is a whole experience because so many times I'm just yelling into it and I'm ready to call in, but I'm four hours late. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's been a great show this year. I appreciate that a lot, and I welcome your call this morning. So I actually saw you tweet in reference to an opinion piece that was written in the Globe and Mail, and the title is, The Revival of Pattern Home Designs Will Do Little to Solve the Housing Crisis, all based on the fact that Housing Minister Sean Fraser said that pre-approved home designs can indeed help ease the housing crisis. The writer here, his name is Alan Terramora. He says that naive. You disagree. Why? Oh, it's completely dis- I completely disagree. So first off, the context, yeah, the federal government is considering looking at some, bringing back basically there was a program after World War II. They called it the pattern books, but basically a bunch of standard designs which empowered builders and, you know, individuals themselves to build standard houses. And, of course, the regulations were aligned with it and everything just made it a lot easier to build a house. This man's claiming now that bringing that back won't make a difference because design and, and, and you know, uh, basically engineering and planning costs around housing is a small fraction of the total cost. And I think he's completely missed the mark there, and I'll tell you why. Um, allowing a standard set of designs for home construction right now would empower so many people to take control of the house building pro- process. And I'll tell you why I'm so focused on this now. I'm fortunate enough that I was able to buy a house 20 years ago for a price now that's embar- too embarrassing to say. You know, but I'm in a situation now, I have a four-month-old daughter, so I'm looking at a situation, I say, I need to move into a more family-friendly neighborhood. And as I'm looking around, I look at the prices of these new houses, and they're insane. Like a new house in, in, in uh, St. John's and surrounding areas, it's nothing to have a four hundred or $600,000 mortgage right now. And considering the rates, just break down the numbers very quick, at you know 6%, and some people say the rates are coming down, you're up around $24,000 in, in interest a year. So immediately my mind goes to why are houses so expensive? Why is this so expensive? And the the while the you know pattern book concept and simple simple designs, there's never a silver bullet for uh, for you know a problem that's this complex. But it will empower people to get into the market and actually build their own houses, or it'll encourage startup companies to come together and be able to build houses for other people. And the reason that can happen is because the most daunting part of house construction is the regulatory burden and oversight. And for me personally, when I look at a subdivision and I say, geez, $650,000 for a a house that's 2,400 square feet above grade in a nice area, I think, God, it's it's at a price point where I'm like, why wouldn't I just build a custom home that, that I really want? But I just look at the complexity of it and trying to manage that myself and find a builder who can execute on the plans. And I think we've we've overcomplicated something that generations ago Newfoundlanders used to do with ease. I read his opinion piece and I just thought he was talking about a lot of hypotheticals that are easily navigated or managed. So I I think he was purposefully trying to to say that something, whether it be political ideology or otherwise, he was putting up roadblocks that may or may not even be the reality. And certainly when we talk about upfront costs, some of the carry costs that are going through the permitting phase 
place. So if pre-approval deals with that, then that is absolutely a savings for the uh, developer, the builder, and of course the end consumer. Then we go into talk about the fact that so much the hand, uh, rural land adjacent, I think is what he called it, to cities is largely in the hand of developers. They've got their own pre-established model for exploiting commercial value. That can be managed. That can be addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely, it could be. I mean, you're also against a cultural backdrop, Patty, of like the van life movement and the micro home movement. And I mean, I'm, I'm one of these people. I like to watch a lot of YouTube. If I'm going to do anything nowadays from uh, cooking something to, you know, fixing something on my truck, I'll literally go onto YouTube. And, you know, it's a rather crude metaphor, but your, your listeners will know it. We always say up in conch that, you know, that guy can put a nurse in a cast. Well, I like to joke now and say there's a video on YouTube that'll tell you how to put a nurse in a cat, right? So you can go off and, and go on YouTube and do all these things. I just think the opportunity for Canada to get together and, you know, in, in, it doesn't, in our political ideology, it doesn't have to be done by bureaucrats. You can open it up and allow, and allow architects from coast to coast to, to put their, you know, young architects, to put their view on uh, what architecture can look like in our time and then publish that and really create a voice for Canadian architecture and housing now and publish that. And once you publish these designs, especially if it's done in a really creative way uh, and, you know, that, 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 that well-recognizable, well-branded, just think of the ecosystem that will build up around it nowadays, Patty. You know that, like, th- there'll be certain people building certain types on YouTube. Then there'll be people putting up websites with checklists for materials. Then people will talk about how you can build this design for under 300000 you know, how you add or build onto this design. And it's not just the design itself. The regulatory burden and the uncertainty that comes with uh, home construction renovation is so significant. So I have a downtown house, and I went through a renovation back in – 2017, about a $200,000 renovation, it went way beyond my initial expectations. And I attribute 30 to $35,000 of that spend was just wasted on regulatory waiting. You know, I had to go off and get an engineering plan that was $15,000 to model floor joists, just ridiculous stuff that just came up. And, you know, the bureaucrats, the, the, the city were not, uh, it wasn't their fault. They were just following the rules, which were very vague. There was a lot of inconsistency. Stuff had to be done. It was vital. And then all of a sudden I was told it didn't matter anymore. And it was really, really infuriating process. And I think just standardizing and simplifying it will empower individuals, empower new builders to enter this market. And I just think it could be a great, a great uh, thing to spark it. It really felt like to me that... He was writing from a point of view that I don't want to be told what I have to build. I, wanted, I don't want to live in a cookie-cutter neighborhood. When, in fact, inside the envelope of pre-approval, it needn't be that. We don't need to have just two designs available. You can pick the color of your clapboard or your vinyl siding. It's a different concept. I, I'm not even sure we're thinking about the same thing, me and the writer, not me and you. So it's just sort of a strange piece. But, you know, when we talk about trying to get homes built as quick as we obviously need to, anything that streamlines that process is probably a, uh, certainly a good idea if not a good idea one was entertaining absolutely absolutely and you know i think that uh you know th- there's a whole generation of people now that are very much into do-it-yourself and you know my uh, grandfather built his house they actually built a sawmill to cut the logs my father built his own house and he's a teacher you know and now it's such a daunting concept for an individual to undertake and i don't know why it has to be so complicated and i look at the van life and the you know the micro home movement and a lot of people chalk that up to sustainable living you know micro living minimalism travel all these things but there's a component no one talks about and that's control right when someone is in that micro home or you see them on youtube or on their their instagram and they're talking about what they built and how they've designed you know their van or their micro home 
they're not they're, they've basically taken control of their house and they're in a situation where there's no inspector coming in and i'm not saying we deregulate things but no, they're no. in control they know what they're doing and if we had standard designs where this is the plumbing chart for this type of house this is electrical for this one people would be empowered and they could you know even if they outsource still large components of it then guess what they're in control uh, they can then price match more confidently they're less in the dark on everything but also if i'm a young person or you know i'm, I'm thinking about changing careers i can now pick three or four common standard designs i could put a little newfoundland flair on them and i could start my own building company and go out and just train people so it simplifies the hiring and the skilling of people who work in building companies so to me it's an absolute no-brainer and i should mention that they they you know the the pattern books from the world war ii days were largely about the single family home um the the model that they're talking about putting forward you know has some you know duplexes micro homes homes for accessible and seniors that's right and as well as as denser so it's a, it's a more modern concept of of multi-unit uh, housing but um the, you know the concept to me makes sense and the opportunity to just just see what young architects could do nowadays i mean how can we not get excited about that yeah and it doesn't change any of the rough in rough in inspection timetable and or final inspections i will add to it there's probably a time to have some pre-approvals in place for developers developers that have a good track record of design and execution maybe with a biannual review but let's just take some of these hurdles down where if someone has been applying and building homes for the last 20 years and goes back to the table every single time to go through the same arduous process with the same for, uh, foreseeable outcome of approval let's kind of do away with that as well even if we review it every couple of years but let's just fast track things the best we can without going down the path of full-on reckless deregulation Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, Patty, we're, we're in a situation now with the interest rates and the bond markets seem to tell us that it's a, it's a largely a temporary situation. Like the, the look ahead to next year, the, the rates will come down a bit, but we're not going back to the world of, of 0% interest rates. You know, we're going to no. 6%. They might go back to five. They might go to four and a half. But the idea of having a, a four and a half, a five percent uh, interest rate is kind of here to stay, and that means every hundred thousand dollars is five thousand in interest alone. So you know we can go off and we cannot eat at this restaurant, and you know we cannot take that trip and be you know penny wise and pound foolish, or we can get the cost of our housing down. You know, get a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars knocked off that six or seven hundred thousand dollar home. There's a lot you could do with four hundred thousand dollars, and you know, it, to me, it's just the opportunity is there. And I don't think the interest rates have really bit into our market yet. So we're going to have a situation where the market's going to start to tighten a lot over the next year. But against the backdrop where Newfoundland is finally growing, we need new houses. We need young families staying here. So we got to come up with some innovative solutions. Josh, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. Take My care, pleasure. Betty. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the hustle, the bustle, the strategy and growth out of the Port of Argentia with the VP of that portfolio. That's Chris and Hook. Don't go away. There's going to be a time tonight. Who says you can't start a new tradition? Bringing in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. Welcome back to the program. Just a couple of days ago, we were, we learned that the province was going to invest some $15 million out of the Port of Argentia for an expansion that we'll understand a little bit further now in a moment. That's part of a $72 million pot of money in combination with a variety of groups. We'll find out exactly what's going on with the VP of Strategy and Growth at the Port of Argentia. That's Chris Nook. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, good to be online with you. What exactly is this money targeted for? 
Well, we're really delighted that the uh, the province has uh, made this decision uh, to um, make an investment into our uh, the expansion of our dock facility uh, here uh, at the uh, Port of Argentia. Uh, our, our facility, uh, you know, has not expanded uh, since we took it over. Uh, we'll say back in 2001 when we took over the property. So uh, we've got a lot of things happening on site. You've heard uh, of, uh, a lot of things we're doing in the renewable sector as well as oil and gas is still a very important uh, aspect for us and, and marine transportation. So the, the ability to expand our dock facilities to accommodate uh, these, these uh, new industries is very important for us. So uh, this, uh, this uh, contribution by the province uh, uh, in, in tandem with uh, earlier announcement this year from the federal government of uh, close to $38 million is putting us on a path to be able to uh, move forward with the construction of uh, at least 430 meters of new dock face for us, which is uh, pretty important. Is this a matter of if you build it, they will come, or do you have these partners in the, in the uh, wings waiting for the construction to, uh, to be concluded? Well, it's a combination. Uh, we, we already have uh, a lot of congestion at our dock now with, uh, I don't know if you've been on our site, uh, Patty, but we've got uh, 28 of these monstrous uh, monopiles out here for uh, the offshore uh, wind uh, program off the uh, United States. Uh, uh, these uh, fabulous things are coming in uh, uh, over our dock now, and uh, that's making our existing facility uh, quite busy uh, in in, uh, in, in uh, tandem with you know the other uh, business that we already have, but uh, in, in uh, you know in addition to that, we uh, as you know are working with uh, Pattern Energy to develop an onshore wind project, uh, which would result in uh, you know the production of green fuels that uh, we're, we're looking to uh, target for export. So that that facility, of course, will need uh, dock capacity. And we have other uh, other things in the oil and gas area, critical minerals. Uh, we've got uh, aquaculture growing in Placentia Bay. So there's a lot of things that uh, really uh, require access to a uh, tidewater dock to be able to exploit the opportunity. So that's where we're, we're going with this. I'm not going to try to get you to speak for Pattern Energy, but of course they're part of this green hydrogen play here. They weren't one of the four companies put forward to the next stage by the provincial government because their initial stage does not include or require Crown Land. Can you give us any idea the the momentum that they have or any progress that's been made? Well, I think they're a right-sized project uh, for us right now, Patty, frankly. Uh, I mean, they're looking at 300 megawatts, not uh, into the gigawatts yet. And our backlands property and some of our other property, I mean, we we are blessed with 9,000 acres of of property. And so uh, we're able to do that project on our own uh, private uh, soil, we'll say. Uh, So uh, that will enable them to fit into the existing uh, provincial grid, we think, nicely, and be able to produce the energy required to, uh, to then produce the hydrogen and ammonia, and to be able to get the, those shipments over to uh, the European markets. How do the operations at the part of our agenda fit into the uh, Government of Canada's National Trade Corridor Program? Well, I mean, the, the essential component is that uh, the, the world still moves by tidewater. 90% of trade is on the ocean. It's just the most effective, efficient way of doing things. So when we look at trying to create gateways for economic development and expand trade, uh, we, we are talking about uh, ocean movement of, of cargoes. So uh, this, uh, this investment by the federal government ties directly into that and uh, the ability to, to move, whether it's ammonia or move critical minerals, 
uh, move these uh, offshore wind turbine uh, uh, parts, uh, and uh, as well supporting our uh, you know onshore wind uh, uh, that we're looking to grow, not just in the Argentia area, but right across the island. All these large projects require these turbines to come ashore and these uh, foundations to come ashore. So we're trying to build capacity, and uh, the federal government acknowledges and sees that. And uh, so we're, we're uh, very happy to see, you know, all these contributions to help us do what we're trying to do uh, to support not just our region, but uh, our province and, and our country. How's the port looking at the uh, issue regarding critical minerals? Because, you know, for democratic countries, we're well positioned. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80% of all the required critical minerals for things like batteries for my cell phone, electric vehicles, and otherwise. You know, the thought is here, Canada's long done a pretty good job of extraction, not so much when it comes to secondary or tertiary processing. So what do you, how do you view critical minerals in the future? Because I think we've missed an opportunity if we don't build from the minerals and sell the product to the rest of the world. So how do you in the port and the industry view what's happening? Well, we see it as being a, a, a matter of very significant national uh, national significance, basically, in terms of the uh, security issues associated with all the technology that, uh, you know, uses these uh, critical minerals. So we, we, uh, we want to support, uh, you know, our national interest in uh, getting these things produced here uh, in North America, in Canada. And so uh, if we can, uh, you know, we, we have an abundance of property here. We've got a Tidewater asset. And uh, if someone wants to bring, uh, you know, that, uh, no matter where it is in, in the, uh, the value chain, uh, we, we would like to be able to, uh, you know, uh, look at supporting that by way of, uh, uh, you know, whether it be helping with the construction of batteries or, or the separation plants or whatever would go into the further production of uh, these uh, these critical minerals that uh, are, are so much in need. My hope would be that the Port of Argentia would be used to ship out the final product because we really have a massive opportunity here to take control of the supply chain. We've unfortunately learned the hard way about what global supply chain issues look like and the impact on the economy because we've suffered because we really haven't tackled that in a you know pragmatic fashion, secondary and or tertiary processing in this country. Now, there's an economic argument as to why that has been the case, but I think the critical mineral issue is a bit different than the manufacturing of the past. Uh, final thought to you, Chris, before we say goodbye. Well, no, I just want to, uh, you know, issue a thank you to uh, our provincial government for their foresight. I mean, lots of times when, you're, when you have these programs that the government has uh, available to it to, uh, you know, to spur things, uh, some, some are better project opportunities than others. And we believe that this is a really valuable investment that our province is making, and it's going to uh, uh, pay returns for, uh, for our region and for our province into the future. So we think it's a very wise investment, and we're looking forward to taking hold of this opportunity now and uh, making making good on it for ourselves and for uh, the province. I appreciate the time this morning. I'm always interested in what's happening at the part of our agenda. Always good news coming from your area. Yeah, we've got lots going on. So uh, at this point, I just want to say uh, Merry Christmas to everyone and a Happy New Year, and we'll, we'll see many of our, our uh, stakeholder groups in the new year and look forward to... Uh, going onward and upward. Merry Christmas to your team and your family. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Chris Nahook, the VP Strategy and Growth at the Port of Argentia. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Sherry, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm okay, thank you. How about you? Not too bad, Patty. The reason I'm calling in is uh, we lost our cast here. It's going into about a week now, 
and I'm trying to see if anybody uh, might have found her uh, around Montague Street or Middleton Street or up back in Harding Road. Um, she's a beautiful, very beautiful cat. She's a pumpkiny orange color, ginger, really gorgeous, gorgeous cat, medium uh, size and really fluffy like a Persian. So she's gone now about a week, and I'm just wondering if anybody might have seen her. Could they please return her back to me on Middleton Street? I'd really appreciate it. Describe the cat. Uh, she's a medium-sized cat, pumpkiny ginger orange, very, uh, very attractive cat, really fluffy, soft like Persian fur, thick Persian soft fur, and she comes to cuddles is her name. Uh, fingers crossed that Cuddles makes her way home. I appreciate the time. Okay, and I can be reached at 709-730-1462 if anyone would be kind enough to return her if they see her. Let's hope so. Thanks for this, Sherry. Good luck. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful Christmas, Patty. Same you to you and yours. Same to you, Sherry. Bye, Thank bye. you. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. There we go. <laughs> Cuddles on the loose. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Adam, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How's it going? Doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Looking forward to a bit of a break now leading up to Christmas and New Year's. No truer words were ever spoken. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a pretty crazy busy year, so uh, I haven't really had much of a break since last Christmas, so really looking forward to it. Me too. Um, I just wanted to call in to talk about the Crown Lands thing. Uh, I heard your preamble there this morning where the Diamonds in uh, Catalina had the their land issue finally squared away. Um, now, that's three years of their life fighting for this problem to be solved, and I am happy for them to finally be able to move forward with it. Um, it's uh, great for them to finally be able to put this behind them and move on with what they wanted to do in the first place. Uh, I don't think that anyone in the government or in Crown Lands should be viewing this as a win or a problem solved. I mean, under no circumstances should they have had to spend $10,000 to buy the property that they already in my opinion, not in the Crown's opinion, I know, because I've been told by several people, but in my opinion, the property that they already owned. They should not have had to spend another $10,000 just so the government would agree with them that they own it. Um, as Greg French has said before, there's an estimated you know, several tens of thousands of properties in this province with the same problem. But if we just use conservative numbers and say there's 10,000 properties that are in the same boat as the diamonds. Some of those are going to be worth way more than $10,000. But just for easy numbers, if we say there's 10,000 properties that the government is going to require those 10,000 families to buy that land for $10,000 a piece, that's $100 million. If the diamonds outcome becomes the standard for what for how these issues are going to be handled going forward, 
That means that the government, the Crown Land Division, is going to place a financial burden of $100 million on individuals in this province. And that is not a win. That's not a way to solve this problem. No, it isn't. And I got an email after, I guess it was what I had said off the top of the show about Crown Lands this morning. You know, people say, it was from a realtor, saying that people need to do their due diligence and have the title searches done before they get into this predicament. But even afforded the rules that the government has in place, the Diamonds had affidavits that the land had been occupied 20 years prior to 1976. The government wouldn't accept them. So, okay, in some parts of the province, whether or not you uh, actually have uh, some rural land that there was never a worry about, it's hard to come up with some title searches on some of these pieces of property in the first place. Is very much unlike the metro region. So, yes, people getting into whether it be a commercial operation like yours and or individuals simply buying a piece of land or a home that sits on a piece of land. Yeah, do that work up front, but the government's rules are clear. If you can prove that the land was occupied for 20 years prior to 1976, then any of that lack of due diligence up front should and can will be removed. So the province simply wouldn't accept their affidavits. Why? I have no earthly idea. But you're right. $100 million out of people's hands and out of the economy, more importantly, is pretty backwards thinking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's going to have a, a severe negative impact on the economy and individual families in this province. Um, if you can prove that you occupied a piece of land for that 20 years prior to 1977, in my opinion, that that entire approach to the Lands Act that they changed in 77 is just complete nonsense it makes no sense and and i and i'd like to just bring it back to my family land from my hometown people have lived there for nearly 250 years so generations of my family lived on the property that i grew up on for 175 years at least my great uncle lived in a house on my parents' property. When he passed away, they actually put that house on a, on a wooden skid and towed it to a different location in the, in the community for someone else to live in. So after doing that, that property was technically considered vacant. It was still owned by my family. It was still used by my family, but there was nobody living on it. So when my father came of age and wanted to build a home for his family, his father said, yep, that's uh, my uncle's property. Nobody's using it. Go down and build a house, raise a family, no problem. But because that property was vacant for a portion of that arbitrary 20 year period, the government, we, we haven't gone through the process because we don't have any need to right now, but based on the government's policies and legislation, that land was vacant for a, a portion of that 20-year period. So they have grounds to say, no, you didn't continuously use the land for a 20-year period from 1956 to 1976. Even though you used it and lived on it generationally for 175 years before that, there was a, a small portion of time which is the only portion of time that we are concerned with where the land was vacant. 
So now your entire family lineage of owning that land is irrelevant and you don't own it. That is nonsense. It really is. It is absolutely nonsense. Yeah, and and I mean, there's... I would imagine most of those properties in small rural communities across Newfoundland are going to be some version of that story that I just told. Because, I mean, people lived in small outports where they were close to fishing grounds in this province for two, three, four, five hundred years before now. And... 400 years or more before there was any form of organized government in this province. You couldn't even go get legal title to a piece of land unless you got it from Queen Victoria in the British Parliament. Like it's, And then they just come in and form a government here and say, you know, most of our legislation is just antiquated, outdated stuff that was based on the, the British Parliament's uh, Commonwealth laws. And it just ran forward with these laws that that don't apply to modern-day Newfoundland and Canada. And they just seem very reluctant to acknowledge that these legislation and policies are not applicable to modern-day. And they just are completely reluctant to do the work that is required to amend the legislation to make it make sense with 2023. You mentioned Britain. Well, I mean, unfortunately, many municipalities in this province, when we talk about agriculture, whether it be homesteading or backyard farming and or major agricultural place, we're using all British law to guide principles inside municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador in 2023. (laughs) We've got to kind of get away from this kind of stuff and and modernize the approach that we're taking to a variety of matters. We shouldn't be leaning on anything that comes from British rule at this this point. Uh, Adam, I understand the frustration. We've had many conversations. I always appreciate your time. I want to wish you and your family the Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You too, Patty. Thank you very much for allowing me to, you know, be on the air so often talking about this problem over and over again. Uh, it's very much appreciated, and uh, I feel like your program and and the local news media were instrumental in in these Newfoundland-based stories getting out to the public so that everybody is aware of of what's going on. We're happy to do it. And, you know, for me, the story, uh, and take this for how it's intended, the story is bigger than you. The story is bigger than the diamonds. That's why we're happy to talk about it, because there's inevitably thousands of people that will find themselves in the exact same predicament. Yeah, it is absolutely bigger to me, and the diamonds. It's, it's you know, it's a, a province-wide issue that, that requires the attention that it's currently not getting. Appreciate this, Adam. Stay in touch. Thanks, buddy. All right, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Before we get to the news, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Clyde. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. Morning to you. This is fire off this land. The arm hunts. Same here. Yeah. Well, uh, I just phoned in there. Thank you for taking me calls during the year. I didn't get on that often, but uh, it do ring true that people do listen. And uh, if we don't say something, we'll never get nothing done, like I said. And... uh, Thank you for that, and uh, hopefully the new year will be a good one. This year was a good one for me, and uh, everybody else, I hope. And uh, like I said, God bless you and everybody else out there, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and hope that we can uh, all go forward and get things done together, because 
apparently we never do nothing, right? Fair enough, Clyde, and I appreciate your time this morning and throughout the year, and I want to wish you and everyone on the Bureau Peninsula a uh, happy New Year, Merry Christmas, and thanks for this, Clyde. Yeah, like I say, Newfoundland, Labrador, every crook and cranny, same thing, we're all the same, and uh, hopefully we'll get things done, things will turn around. We're a have-not again now, but uh, hopefully we'll be a have province again. <laughs> well, I hope so too, whatever yeah. that actually means. I just hope we change the equalization formula first before we have to worry yeah. about what's next. Uh, Clyde, good to have you on. Take good care of yourself over the Christmas uh, season. Basically, I'm saying, Patty, is just that uh, going forward, like I say, yesterday's gone, and... Uh, forward we go ahead and we got to make the best of what we got with what we got hey, bye. thanks man appreciate that yeah, you take care now. god bless you too bye-bye uh let's see here let's take a break but if you were on the west southwest coast uh, this morning and you know the weather has been changing if you want to give us an update as to what you're seeing in road conditions we can share them with people who are wondering whether or not they should try to make their way to one community or another uh, let's take a break when we come back sandra's in the queue she wants to talk about cause some issues she's having with immigration visas don't go away Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Oh, okay. Thank you. How about you? I'm not too bad. Battling a bit of bad weather out here coming, I think. <laughs> Well, where are you calling from, particularly? From Fort Abbas. Yeah, it looks like some nasty weather in the forecast for your region. So, fingers crossed, not too much damage, whether it be to provincial infrastructure, your own property, and, of course, out on the highways. Uh, Sandra, tell us about the concerns you have with trying to get an immigration visa. Yes, I um, try to make a long story short. I went to Africa to um, with a group to do some work seven years ago. Met a young man at the orphanage, and... Um, and there was a bond between us. My daughter was with me as well. And uh, his name is Frederick. Um, and then he went under the care of a lady who took all the boys from the orphanage under her care. I was trying to, to get him then. Um, three years ago, he uh, resurfaced after he was allowed to contact me again. And we had been in contact ever since. Um, I tried then through immigration to get him brought to Newfoundland. And um, the cost was just out of my league altogether. So in March of this year, I um, just happened to look into finding this PNP program in Newfoundland, and it's in the Atlantic provinces as well. It's a um, provincial nomination program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had to do all the process for him to um, get a job. I went out with resumes and got him hired at the PharmaSave here in Portobas, and he was supposed to start work in April. But there was so much paperwork to do, like he had to get his national ID, his um, passport. He had to do a two-week uh, English test to see where he was at his English level. Then this criminal record check. And everything was going through perfectly, you know, and his employer was um, adjusting the date to when we thought he would get here. And then he had to do his biometrics, which included, included fingerprinting. Um, and that's when his proper birth date showed up. Now, in Uganda, there are millions of children who don't know their birth date. It's because there's so many children who are orphaned um, through to death or their families just not being able to care for them. 
Uh, and they're given a birth date when they show up at the orphanage. And that's the birth date he was using. And then it went to IRCC, which was immigration, and this other birth date showed up. And he knew when the other birth date came out that it, one of them was wrong. And instead of him addressing it, he was told by one of the leaders there who we've trusted to let it go because the Ugandan government is not going to do anything to help you fix this. They've backed off the situation because it's just so much of it there. Um, and he got turned down to come to Canada and is banned to come here to live with us and start his job for five years. So are they simply viewing the two different birthdates as him being dishonest or trying to game the system? Is that what yes. that issue is? Okay. Yes, it is. And so if the understanding of you, and I would imagine many people that are working for Immigration Canada, that these issues are going to be rampant in many nations, including many African nations, where if you have a huge number of uh, orphans and they have no earthly idea when they were born, because when you're born, you're not, you don't have the brain capacity to recognize the date on the calendar. So they're given information that they work with so you know to deem it to be just patently dishonest is sort of a stretch yeah and i've i've talked to two people in immigration who can be of no help to me they've told me uh, to get a lawyer to fight it now you and i know a lawyer is very expensive but i do have one booked for january um for a conference call with her because i just i feel like i can't give up because we've worked at this so hard all year and, you know, it was, we were a month getting all the federal documentation, doc, documentation done and sent in. It was a long process. He is very fluent in English, but sometimes his writing English, you know, I, I'll critique it for him. Um, right now he's 21 years old, and his bedroom is ready here. Uh, just give me a minute. No problem. You, you take your time. So here's a young fellow who's gone through the entirety of the protocols and the process, passed through all of them, get all the work done, and because of some confusion regarding a birth date, he was given. He didn't just select it. He was given it at the orphanage. He's got a job waiting for him. He's got a place to live. He would want for nothing. He has aspirations of being a doctor. He would think when we talk about the kind of immigrants that would be most helpful societally and economically and to fill in some of the professional gaps, that Frederick sounds like a candidate that you know, immigration should be able to evaluate on a case-to-case basis as opposed to say, simply saying, oh, two different birth dates. Well, this person is completely dishonest. We can't trust him to enter the country. Well, we know there are many other cases where people have been absolutely welcomed into the country with much more serious issues uh, of concern. So this is really confusing to me. I guess it's just going by the black and white. No, uh, no opportunity to, you know, evaluate it on a case-to-case basis. I know. And I'm hoping, you know, I, I, uh, I'm retired and my husband is forcibly retiring in the new year because we're losing our business here. And, um, you know, I, I, I will keep up the fight as long as I can, financially and emotionally. He's totally devastated. Um, and he keeps saying, you know, this is my fault. I should have said something. And, and I said, but, you know, you've learned to not trust very many people there. And I said, you know, if the government wasn't corrupt there, we could contact government over there, but that's not how it is in Uganda. And like I said, there are so many children, well, young men and women now, are in the same boat as Frederick. You know, we started this uh, thinking his birth date was 1998, 
and it turned out to be 2001. So it's not like, you know, they to me they should almost see that, okay, this is not just a, 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 a number. Like this is completely three years in difference. Um, it wasn't his intention to defraud anybody. He was just told to let it go, and he went to court and got a sworn document saying he didn't know his birth date. This was actually his birth date. They did not accept that. Um, so did Canada get the so-called correct birthday from the Ugandan government? Yes. Okay. Sandra, if you don't mind me asking, and feel free not to answer, but you mentioned that your husband is going to be forcibly retired because you're losing your business. What's happening? Our business was one of the places affected with Fiona, and we're just waiting for them to tear it down, but he's still working. How is recovery going from Fiona out there? Because, you know, some people will indeed choose to rebuild elsewhere away from the water as much as they can. Some people have actually chosen to leave the community. What do you see? Well, right now, he always says, well, you know, I can't deal, deal. I can't, I don't have the hand of cards to, to deal. So right now we're just in limbo because we don't know if he's going to get anything, what he's going to get, and how that determines for him to continue in life. He's far from ready to retire. Um, you know, he's very busy at his garage, and Frank has been there since 1981. The garage is, is the oldest surviving business in Portobas. Um, but he's he's accepted that it has to come down. It's just we really don't know the next move until we're given some some final numbers. I, I wish you and your husband well, and uh, keep in touch with us on this file when you speak with a lawyer here in January. I'd be curious to know wh- what steps are next. Yes, I thank you very much for taking my call, Patty, and um, and I do appreciate it very much. I've reached out everywhere that I can reach. Um, to try to get some help with this because he's not just a number. And as I mentioned in our email thread, I did forward it to the person that I told you I would, so I'll follow up with them as well. And I wish you well. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Will I take one more? Uh, you want me to take Winnie? Yeah. Let's see here. Let's go to line number five. Winnie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. How are you today? Grand. How about you? Good. First time caller, but you know what? I just had to call on this topic, this subject, because if you, uh, I don't know if it was the city or if it was the police officer talking about Goldstone and Thorburn Road. Yeah. For changing the restructure. Well, I'm telling you, they need to put a police officer on the Goldstone part because there's a stop sign there. And I've been living on Thorburn Road over 40 years, and every time I come down Thorburn Road and stop on that light, which I've done numbers of times in the run of a day, and there's nobody stops at that stop sign. It continues going right on as if it was a yield sign. And they don't even use it as a yield sign because they don't even stop. It's like, I think they need to put a police officer there. Well, it certainly get a return on investment. If you hired a cop to do nothing but be patrol the stops on a gold right. street, you get your money back in a hurry. That's right. You'll get your tickets. And yeah. you know what? I'm, I'm th- living there for over 40 years, and I've not yet see a police officer there in that corner. And as the report says, it is the most dangerous intersection in the city. Right. 43 right. collisions, 35% rate of injury because people, you know, of course, going pretty quick down that stretch of Thorburn Road That's as well. Right. So exactly. I understand exactly. it. Yeah. So they really they need to put a police officer there. I think maybe that would help. 
Well, nothing slows people down or, or forces them to stop a full stop at a stop sign, quite like a police car or a police yeah. person. That's right. And you know what? That's one of my pet peeves because it really irks me when I see that. And you uh, don't stop. Yeah, a lot of what I see on the roadways irks me these days, but I gotta say, my thing that I watch for all the time is people running red lights. And I guarantee you, well, if I leave work five days a week here and go down to take a left off Kelsey, you will see someone run that red light every single oh, yeah. day. It is remarkable right. to me. Every single day there's someone runs that red. And like I say, Thorburn Road is a kind of a dangerous place. There's a lot of uh, high traffic there, and there's and there's a lot of speeders there too, as well. Hundred percent. Appreciate the first time call, Winnie. All right. Thank you, and you have a good Christmas. You too, Winnie. All the best. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right uh, let's take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Sigmund to the executive director of the Automobile Dealers Association of NL. That's Marion Templeton. Good morning, Marion. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Excellent. Well, getting over COVID these days, like everybody else in St. John's, across the province. There's a lot of it out there, no doubt about it. I didn't know you were calling, but I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about the newly introduced so-called roadmap for electric vehicle key targets for 2035. Where do we start? Well, uh, the government came out earlier this week with uh, their what they call their electric vehicle availability standard, yep. which actually applies to automakers, not dealerships. Uh, but it does impact uh, our industry. Um, you know, automobile dealerships want to sell cars. They want to get people in shiny new cars and get them out on the streets. And what this new regulation um, uh, entails is saying that by 2035, all vehicles sold in Canada have to be 100% electric. Now, we feel that the government has set this aggressive target um, with not really thinking of, of all of the things that would have to come into play in order to make this happen. So, for example, you know, we have a huge geography right across Canada. Uh, you know, you think of our vast northern provinces and, uh, you know, even in, within our own province, Labrador and uh, the northern peninsula, and, uh, you know, having to have charging stations at convenient locations so that people can move around. Um, and we don't think that they've really thought through um, what needs to, to be put in place in order for these goals to happen. Um, they're, it's, they're not receiving uh, the attention and the funding that they need uh, to be available and functioning by 2035. I'm going to ask you for some specifics now in a second, but just for context for numbers, 20% of all cars, SUVs, crossovers, light-duty pickups sold by the car makers, zero emissions by 2026. By 2030, 60%, and then 100%, as you mentioned. Yep. There are some exemptions like emergency vehicles, what have you. It's a kind of a convoluted approach you're taking anyway. So the auto makers will get the lose or earn bank credits, $20,000 for every vehicle that has an all-electric range for at least 80 kilometers. So give me some specifics of uh, issues that you don't think they've given enough focus or attention to what specifically well, just specifically as i said uh, you know having charging stations right across the province in convenient locations for example there's right now there's no fast charging station in the east end of st john's uh, i i sit here around the portugal cove road uh, uh higgins line uh intersection and uh, the closest fast charging station public fast charging station where i am is out in paradise so, uh, you know, they need to get charging stations uh, it, it can more conveniently located around the province. If you were to get in the car and drive from here to Port of Basque, 
you know you can you can stop at charging stations along the way right now there's not a whole lot of electric vehicles on the road so when you pull up to those charging stations today you're likely to be able to get in and get hooked up and get charged but uh, you know as more vehicles are on the road they have to keep make sure that the infrastructure is kept up in order to accommodate the additional vehicles yeah That's one of the main things I think I think I see a program talking about 86,000 plus fast charging stations as part of this program but no specific numbers there they just kind of float numbers around there are indeed credits for the automakers to build fast charging stations so they you know they've made it that vague a reference but that is yes. actually part of the program and that that might indeed be the easy part. I think what's going to be much more difficult is to actually have all of these vehicles by mandate actually available at a reasonable purchase point, at a reasonable wait time, because at this stage, that is nowhere near. And, you know, you can't force people to buy what they don't want leading up to 2035, and there will be the issue of grandfathering in all the internal combustion engines. So I would think, and I don't know if you agree, I'll get your opinion here now in a second, for folks who really just don't want an electric vehicle, whether it be because they live uh, out in rural parts of the country and they have long travel distance, whether it be for work and for appointments or hospitals or what have you. So they're going to race to the finish line and buy one at the 11th hour and let an internal combustion engine. And consequently, dealers are going to have a hard time trying to forecast how many vehicles they actually want on their lot that are ECEs, how many vehicles they want on their lot that are EVs or hybrids. That's going to be a really difficult way to try to figure out how to order. Oh, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. You know, we have to ensure that Canadians can afford to, to purchase, to use, to charge the vehicles in a manner that suits their different lifestyle and ge- geographical requirement, without a doubt. Yeah, now for many, you know, we talk about the folks that have to travel long distances repeatedly, and that is a problem because of uh, charging stations, as you rightfully point out. At this time in Canada, about 80% of electric vehicle owners actually do their charging at home, and that satisfies them. Because, I mean, realistically, like my wife's car, that hasn't been outside the overpass since the day she bought it, right? So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the challenges, Patty, is, uh, you know, look at the bigger cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal with high-rise, you know, condominium buildings and so on. How are they going to retrofit those old buildings? And even look at, you know, downtown St. John's, um, you know, you're not going to have wires going across every sidewalk on Gower Street out to your electric cars. You know, there's a whole lot of more things that have to be thought of before they go 100% with this mandate. I don't dispute it, and I'll add this to it. We have a federal cabinet minister apparently calling us later this morning. With all of, whether it be population growth, expansion of electric vehicles and or hybrids, what about the grid? I mean, I know that's not mm-hmm. a question for you, but that's going to be an awful lot of attention required because, you know, with an additional population requires additional demand on the grid. With all the expansion they're talking about with electric vehicles, we have not figured out the grid issue. And I'm, that's one of the first questions I'm going to ask the federal minister this morning because it's easy enough to say you're going to incentivize uh, for me to get into an EV. But boy, oh boy, there's got to be some federal guidance beyond tra- mandating what I should purchase at what time in my life. So there's a lot more to that, I think. Oh, absolutely. I look forward to hearing the the minister's uh, um, opinion on that for sure. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that leads to maybe removing some barriers regarding east-west flow of power, you know, not being held captive by the big bullies on the other side, in this case, Quebec. So maybe they'll just maybe they'll have to give some consideration there. Uh, Anything else you want to say on that front while we have you? 
Well, at the end of the day, Patty is the de- representing the dealerships across Newfoundland and Labrador. We want to sell cars, and you know we want to sell affordable cars to to people, and we want to sell the right vehicles to people. Uh, and uh, you know that that's that's uh, the Automobile Dealers Association's um, focus on this matter. And you wonder how the incentives for the manufacturers are going to result in trying to ease the pressure on the price point because there's a lot of unknowns there. The manufacturers are in business to make money. You're in business to sell vehicles. How was 23? Uh, you know, we're recovering from the the, uh, the couple of years of, of COVID and all the challenges that that uh, gave us, having to shut down, um, you know, our businesses for periods of time and that sort of thing. So I, I say there's a there's a bright bright uh, horizon uh, in 2024 coming up. This isn't a Newfoundland Labrador question, but I'm just curious, Marion, did you see the story in the national news regarding Kia and the Ontario dealerships? Yes, yeah, I, I can't comment on that. You know, it is uh, outside of our provincial jurisdiction, I guess, for lack of a better word. Fair enough. I appreciate making time for the program this morning, uh, Marion. Good luck and uh, good luck and happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. Thanks, Patty. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Marion Templeton is the ED of the Automobile Dealers Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm not afraid to talk about the key issue. It's disgraceful. So the Kia dealers are waiting to satisfy their customers' uh, orders. So just remember, there's been a lot of wait time to try to get a new vehicle in the recent past. So people are putting down deposits, which the manufacturers or the dealers are making money on. And all the while, Kia, in an effort to not look too successful to headquarters in Korea, they're sitting on thousands of vehicles that are ready. They're on the ground in Ontario, but because they don't want to boost 23 sales, consequently lose some marketing financial support from Kia itself, they're sitting on the cars. There's people who got the cars paid for. And Kia won't deliver them to the dealer. Kia Canada won't deliver to the dealer because they don't want to lose financial support from Kia International. I mean, it is truly patently disgraceful. If I'm one of those folks, I'm seriously considered eating my deposit and telling Kia to shove that car with the sun don't shine. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Fred Hutton is the Liberal candidate for Conception Bay East Bell Island. And Peter wants to talk about Polar Arm. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the gentleman who's been tapped to be the Liberal candidate in the upcoming by-election in the District of Conception Bay, East Bell Island. That's Fred Hutton. Good morning, Fred. Here on the air. Is this pot up tape? Good morning, Fred Hutton. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. I was just sitting here uh, thinking about the weather outside, which is a little strange. And it, it, I, I thought about a promo that you and I shot in July of 2015. I think it was 2015 when they, we had that awful summer. And it was uh, about three degrees and the sideways rain was coming in. But today would be a, a much nicer day at nine or 10 degrees or whatever it is. Or any of the last few days. The weather has just been incredible over the last one. Very, very unusual. Very, very unseasonal. Yeah, it's strange stuff. To, uh, that's for sure. Let's see here. Where do we start? Give us a percentage breakdown of whether or not you think it's going to be a by-election or a seat in a general election. 
well, I think the Premier answered that question at my launch last Wednesday when he was asked by uh, Richard Duggan of VOCM and, and the other media, and he said that uh, at this point in time it's not going to be a general election, that it will be a by-election. We just we just don't know the date, but uh, from my perspective, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be sooner rather than later because I'm anxious to get at it. You say that this was a natural transition for you coming from your media career to senior policy advisor to the Premier and now a candidate. Is it really that simple or does someone have to twist your arm? Uh, no, there, there wasn't any twisting of arms, but I tell you, it wasn't an easy decision. And for anyone who's ever done this, I guess I, you, you hear it as a reporter, people saying how difficult it is. Uh, it truly was a difficult decision. And despite the fact that some people were saying a month ago that I'd made the decision, I hadn't. Uh, it had certainly been rumored. And, uh, it, it, you know, the opportunity was there to do it now. I mean, if I was going to do this, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have run in the general election back in 2021. But, uh, you know, when I was in the media and the Premier asked me to come and, and, you know, be part of his team, it took me quite a while to uh, to think about that, uh, you know, a couple of months or whatever, a month and a half to, to think about it, because it certainly wasn't on my radar at that time to, to change career paths. But I, I certainly can tell you unequivocally that it has been a fantastic experience. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, the last three and a half years, I've spent pretty well every day. Uh, with the Premier in terms of, you know, going around Newfoundland and Labrador and other things, obviously, at the office on the eighth floor at uh, at Confederation Building. And it's, it's been a very rewarding and difficult uh, period of time. I mean, I don't need to tell you, you worked through COVID as well. Uh, there was there was no staying home at that point. So uh, it, it's been absolutely rewarding. I've seen what the Premier has to do as an MHA and the others that I've worked closely with uh, on the government side. And uh, I know what they do. And, and, and look, I should mention as well, Patty, that I want to congratulate Dave Brazel on his political career. The last 13 or 14 years, he's getting ready to uh, take some time. I was at an event with uh, Dave a few weeks ago. He wants to focus on his health um, and he wants to, to take a bit of time. I'm sure we've not seen the last of him, but for anyone, including Dave Brazel, who, who, who does this, it's... Uh, you know, they, he needs to be congratulated for the work that he's put in, and people certainly speak highly of him, So, and I would do the same. I've known Dave for a long time. So people pick up on this, and, you know, some people might roll their eyes at it, but there's no, no, no happenstance in politics. Everything is very carefully calculated and carefully measured and, you know, finger to the wind to see which way it's blowing. And so people are picking up on the fact that the signs don't look like the liberal signs of the past. The fact of the matter is trends are real politics and they're undeniable historically speaking you can look back and see what trends mean for province to province and the way things go the fury liberal government is the only provincial liberal government in the country you know they have all fallen and so i think the party yourself and the premier and others maybe have scoffed at the fact that you don't have that big red brand and maybe they want to disassociate from who's becoming a pretty unpopular politician in this country being justin trudeau so what do you say to that because i don't think that it's an eye roller i think it's a real you know evaluation or careful calculation of where the country stands regarding liberal governments. Well, yeah, I mean, it, there, there's no mistaking that, uh, you know, the, the, the prime minister has certainly, his polling is not the greatest at the moment. And it's, uh, you know, it's something, I guess, that, that they have to worry about. But, I mean, I'm not running for the federal liberals. Uh, you know, I'm running for Team Fury. He's the, the liberal leader and the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. I, I left my career 
uh, in journalism that I loved a few years ago to try to help out. Uh, I, I sat with Premier Fury, as I said in my, my launch speech, for about four hours in my shed here out in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. And I really just wanted to know, like, what, why was he doing this? Why would he actually, you know, leave a career that he was very comfortable and good at and to come and do this? And it, it just kept going back to he just wanted to help. I mean, and that's, I guess, that's what uh, polit- their physicians do. They want to help people. But on a bigger scale, he wanted to, and he's been politically involved for quite a while. Obviously, you know that. Um, and that's, you know, and I thought about it. It's what journalists do. It's what uh, open line hosts do. People call them when they need help. Usually people don't phone you uh, like they do throw call to throw bouquets and, and congratulate people. But when when they want some help and that's the same thing they do with MHAs, I've seen it through, uh, you know, through, sort of through his eyes now in terms of what he has to do as as an MHA. When people need help navigating government, when they're down on their luck, when, you know, others and on a bigger picture, some of the bigger files that he deals with, obviously, and that uh, I've helped advise him on over the last few years, it just is an easy transition uh, to to be there for people to be accessible uh, I've worked with people all my life I really enjoy it and it, it just it, the opportunity is there now and obviously it, the opportunity would have been there a couple of years ago if I thought about it but it just wasn't at that point I'm just at a, at a different stage now I guess and uh, I just think that because I live in the community I've lived here pretty much all my life raised our kids here you know, they went to school here. I know the people in this community, and and they know me. And it's uh, you know, we've, I've got a pretty good uh, situation in in so much as that. So I I just thought that this was a, a good time to to try and and help the team, but also to take a more hands-on approach from the MHA level on doing work with people in this community. I mean, I've I've worked with more so with Portugal Cove St. Phillips because that's where I'm from, uh, with the volunteer fire department, knowing what they're up to and the and the council. A little bit of Bell Island, but not so much. And, of course, Paradise takes in a large part of this district as well, which is a, a rapidly growing area uh, across St. Thomas's Line right out to Topsail Road. It's, uh, if you drive down there any time, you just see new houses popping up all the time and young families. We were campaigning, going door-to-door last Sunday just a couple of days ago. And, you know, everybody answering the door with two or three kids hanging off their legs and everybody is excited for Christmas. And we just wanted to sort of pop in and say hello just to let uh, everybody know what was going on. And you you can see it, that there's growth and hope. And I mean, obviously, for Paradise, uh, the big issue there is they're looking to uh, to get a new high school for the area because all those young children will eventually grow up and the parents want them uh, want them closer to their their houses. I've met with the the parents, uh, the group that want to. set up a high school out there or get a high school and they've been uh, actively chatting with Sarah Studley, Minister Studley and others about it and, and Minister Howell, they met with her, I think it was last week. So I mean, there, there are lots of issues out here that I know a lot of, but not a lot of, not everything about, but I'm, I'm aware of and, and understand and okay. support. So you're, you're knocking on my door here this morning and I'm, now I'm a Paradise voter and I'm going to say because I've got the two or three kids hanging off my legs there as I answer the door and I'm going to ask you this question. So the issue of a high school the district, the government, the priority list was clear. It was Paradise's number one. Thousands of people being bussed out of that community to go to high school elsewhere. Nowhere in the conversation was Portugal Cove St. Phillips. So my, as a Paradise voter, I'm saying to candidate Fred Hutton, the premier who you advised for years simply made a political decision to benefit his district where he lives. Why did that happen? How come it's not in Paradise like everybody thought it should be? 
Well, I think what he said after that was just because uh, Portugal Cove St. Phillips got one doesn't mean that Paradise uh, is not going to get one. And, you know, they've, they've, he's met with uh, or the minister has met with the parental, the parents group to talk about the um, the need for a high school. And I think, look, all I can tell you is, is you know, both just because one got one doesn't mean the other won't. And I, I, th- I think they're very encouraged by what they're hoping to see in, and what they've heard in the uh, in the upcoming budget. I'm the voter next door. You knock on my door and I say, isn't the fact that we're back on equalization and now a have not province again a failing grade for the Fury Liberal government? And your answer is? Uh, no, I mean, look, there's, there's so much potential here, Patty, with, uh, yeah. I mean, look, if you look at what uh, Quebec gets every year, like $13 billion in equalization, and Newfoundland gets nothing for the last more than a decade, uh, you know, there's something wrong with that. Um, I think the the amount this year is, is, is a pittance in comparison to what other uh, provinces across the country get, and, it, and it's time. I mean, it's a, it's a conversation you and I have had many, many times on how it's the, the formula is, aside from being so complicated, it's wrong. There's something wrong with it when you have a province like this. Uh, let's just compare the three Atlantic provinces, the three other Atlantic provinces, to Newfoundland and Labrador. We've got about 520,000 people here. If you look at the three other provinces combined, they're three times what we have, one and a half million, and we're three times the landmass. We have to provide services to areas in Labrador, western Labrador, northern Labrador, central, southern, up the northern peninsula, down to the southwest coast, the Conagra Peninsula, the southwest coast, uh, the Buren Peninsula. It's massive. I mean, there, there has to be some recognition of the size of the land that we have, the number of communities that are spread out, and how many people are here, and the services that are required and, and expected. Health care, education, transportation, safe transportation, food security for those. I mean, obviously, transportation, they, they all are linked together. Yeah, and of course, Nova Scotia, I think it's $3 billion. I did the best I could to break right. down the Quebec equalization issue and the issue regarding hydro kind of cooking the books and subsidizing rates for the rate payer as opposed to charging market rates. Their equalization payment this year will drop from 13.1 to $5.1 billion. Uh, Fred, I appreciate making time for the show and to you and your uh, challengers, which would be Tina Neri, of course, for the PCs and Kimberly Churchill representing the NDP. Wish you good luck on the hustings. Thanks. I wish them luck as well. And, Patty, I know uh, if I could just take two seconds to wish you and, and your family a, a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I know uh, how hard you and Dave and everybody else there at VOCM work at each and every day. And uh, your service is greatly appreciated by the province, obviously. And uh, somebody, a friend of mine, posted something last night. Um, uh, she said that it, it's a difficult time of year for a lot of people because of, uh, you know, the, the fact that some families have different dynamics going on there are things but she said look reach out to somebody who might be on their own that you might think might just need a phone call or a a quick visit or something like that i think it's important for us all to keep that in mind you know i feel very blessed with my own family we had them all here together last week i'm sure you're going to be doing lots of family events but not everybody has that that luxury i appreciate that sentiment and the time fred thanks for this Take care. Have a have a good one, Patty. You Take too, care. Fred. All the best. Fred Hutton is the Liberal candidate, and you know that's nice thoughts on the way out there. Because look, and even like Mike Campbell here at K Rock, right? He lost his mother unexpectedly on the twenty first of December a few years ago, 
And so whether it be loss in the family, and some people are just lonely and isolated, we talked about loneliness in your overall health, you know, not to be cheesy or corny, but checking in on folks you know who are in that life circumstance, see how they're doing, you know, check in with those Christmas cheer type of messages. You can't make anybody come to a gathering or to go for a coffee or what have you, but even the thought that people are not as alone as they may feel sometimes, and for families who have experienced loss through the Christmas holidays, these are all moving parts. While so many will be cheery and bright and ready to go and to party and have family and friends around, it's not the same thing for everybody. Let's take a break. Peter, oh, should I take John before we go, get the weather update? Yeah, John's out in uh, around Cornerbrook. He wants to tell us about what he sees with the weather. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Yes, hi. Good day, sir. Good day to you. What are you seeing? Yeah, well, I was out in uh, Cornerbrook probably about 45 minutes ago, and uh, in a matter of minutes, it changed from heavy downpour to freezing rain. And now all of Cornerbrook is slippery and wet, of course, with all the water underneath the, uh, uh, the, the snow and, and the freezing rain. And so I was heading west to uh, Cornerbrook, or to Georgia Lake, sorry. So as soon as I get outside of Cornerbrook, it's all rain, and then it changed again. So now I'd say the snow is coming pretty heavy this way. Uh, Visibility is probably less than a kilometer. So it's pretty treacherous out there now. It's the perfect storm, rain followed by ice pellets and snow. Pellets and snow. You have the slipperiest conditions you can imagine. So, John, good warning for the motoring public in and around Cornerbrook. Uh, are, are you? Have you arrived at your final destination? You're in out of it. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm home now. George's Lake now, and everything's just like white. Where like about an hour ago, it was green. Yeah, green Christmas coming here, but some nasty weather on the west and southwest coast. I appreciate the weather update, John. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. All right, uh, let's take that break. Peter, you're next to talk about Bull Arm. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Peter, you're on the air. Oh. Good morning, Paddy. Morning to you. Uh, Paddy, uh, like, uh, just listen on your conversation there with Fred Hutton, you know, like, uh, I'd just like to say that I think that uh, Fred Hutton, with his experience there on the eighth floor, and... Uh, I think he'll make a fine MHA, and I really believe that he is minister material, and I'm sure he will be after the election. Anyway, there was an announcement yesterday on this bull arm fabrication site. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, you know, like, uh, that's long overdue. And it's, a, it's about time, you know, like someone did something in, in, a, in a positive for an area of 25 kilometers, I believe they said it was, square kilometers. And, you know, like, uh, it's got the water depths and things like that. Now, I don't know what kind of a fabrication site they're planning on doing there, but I guess that would be up to the person who uh, who takes it over. But exactly. for me, I hope it's some kind of an oil company or something like that, you know, because it's got the potential there to... Uh, do uh, dry dock services uh, for uh, oil tankers and uh, oil rigs and things like that. And, uh, you know, if you can float uh, the Hibernia platform out of it and uh, things like that, I'm sure you can take a tanker out of the water there. You know, like we got uh, the vessels around our shore, like we're right in the middle of the North Atlantic, as, you, as we all know. And, you know, for, for vessels to be going to Brazil, you know, Spain, Portugal, France, Denmark, what have you, you know, like the... To get those uh, services done, booking them as high as three years in advance to try to get space over there. And when you bring them back, well, then they've got to be done pretty well all over again at somebody's expense to meet the, the Canadian uh, 
standards. Sure, but unless that's addressed in benefits agreements and contracts, then that's always going to be a tricky piece of business because you, uh, unless you put it in the contract, you can't necessarily make a corporation do one thing or another. Like Sonovas, or pardon me, Suncor is sending the Terra Nova over to Spain. Of course, Shoddy worked on, comes back to Bolarm. They made lots of money off Suncor repairing the work and completing the work that wasn't done. I would imagine this is not going to be an oil and gas company. I'm going to surmise that it's going to be a supply company, a support company, like the DF Barnes of the world, that, that type of company, who've already done lots of work out at Polarm already. So hopefully whatever happens is, if, if they lease it or if they buy it outright, we can only hope, and I would imagine this is going to be the obvious, is that they'll be super aggressive because it would be a massive big investment. So they'll be wildly aggressive trying to bring in as much work as humanly possible. Well, you know, like, uh, Patty, uh, having said that, you know, like, uh, the D.F. Barnes uh, apparently has been in there uh, for a while now, and there's a lot of tradespeople and things like that in, in this particular area from St. John's, like, to uh, to uh, Clarenville and, uh, and east and west also. Uh, you know, like, uh, I think that it could be an ongoing thing, not a project every four or five years, and I think to, like, to the Liberal government... You know, like I, I commend them what they what they have done by doing this because they've been there for decades. You know, basically just sitting there. And since Dia Barnes got there, you know how many projects do they have and how many full time jobs is out there. So, like this, just uh, to me this morning, you know, something like that. The government has their hands on. You know, like somebody should the successful company should be held accountable. You know, you use it or you lose it. You know, there's, uh, there's enough just taking up the space right now. Uh, and there is, in my opinion, there's all kinds of work right here in the middle of the Atlantic for that type of uh, of a base, you know, uh, shipyard or uh, dry dock or what have you. So, you know, like, all this should be factored in, you know, like in a... And I'm sure, like, uh, I got a lot of friends and buddies and families in the, in the trades thing. And I'm sure there were Fred Hutton was too this morning there. There's a lot of trades in uh, CBS and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, everything uh, matters. A lot of iron workers, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I hope it goes to someone who's going to use it, not lose it. But at the same time, being sitting there for this long, you know, like my head comes off to Premier Fury and the Liberal government for uh, for taking the initiative to go ahead and... Uh, and get it started by somebody, you know? Hello? Yeah, no, I'm listening. Um, sure, I mean, I don't know why there wouldn't be as much work as possible out at Polarm. And, you know, you say congratulations to the Fury government on this particular move with an RFP. But remember, it was May of 2021 when it was recommended clearly by the Premier's own economic recovery team, the, the Green Group, recommending that this exact thing take place. So my question would be, what, why does it take so long? Me. My question would Lampard? be for the government: Why did why did it take so long to do exactly what was I recommended? I don't know. Like uh, this really went on in the in the PC government when this uh, was kind of mop ball or whatever. That's the way we'd look at it. Like living here in the area, like even though I'm a senior, like it'd mean a lot to the general area. I don't know why it took so long either. But uh, <coughs> anyway, that's my take on it. By that's good news for the area. I'm surprised that other people are not speaking more out on it. You're not talking about a small area. It might be 25 kilometers at the site, but, you know, you're, you're talking really from uh, all over Newfoundland and Labrador, all kinds of tradespeople that are uh, looking to uh, get work home, good-paying jobs, uh, full-time jobs uh, home, you know what I mean? 
And uh, like I said, I, I think it's a good announcement coming up for Christmas time, and I just hope they do the right thing with what they got. There's another thing. <coughs> Excuse me, buddy. No problem. Uh, uh, like, Prima Fiori is also going to have, you know, like, uh, step up uh, and uh, and address, you know, like the fishing problems here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And if you do, if you don't come to the microphone to make some announcements on fisheries and a bit of good Christmas cheer and stuff like that, and after the new year, you know, if he do, he'll be the first government since Joey Smallwood. You got to remember now, Danny Williams just about done us in when he brought in that raw material sharing and all that kind of stuff. And then you got the other other things, you know, like uh, you got a pricing farmer and all this kind of stuff. And there's so many things as export, the best products, you know. And if that's live product, well, then so be it, you know. But we, the fishermen got to get paid for what they bring in, you know. Like uh, it can't be a, a make work project, so to speak, for. Uh, yeah, well, I guess and, there's... Uh, uh, there's other... There's, go ahead, I'm no, sorry. No, I, I have to get to the news, but the live export, I mean, massive money being spent out at Gander's Airport for exactly that reason. And, you know, I, we are, we understand between the FFAW and conversation with the government that the price-setting structure will be something that is attended to w- well in advance of the next uh, crab season. And in the fishery, of course, we can always talk about that industry here on the show. Uh, I appreciate the time. I'll give you the last word, Peter. Uh, Eddie, uh, last uh, word there... Uh, I hope uh, Premier Fury is listening because the way we feel about this industry right now is we feel that, you know, Lana Payne, hitter of Univore, should come to Newfoundland. I don't mean rush down today, but Lance is here by Christmas Eve and fire Greg Pretty and Jason Spingle because they're incompetent and they're not capable of doing the job and they get destroyed everything that Richard Cashin. Des McGraw, Ray Janesy, and Earl McCurdy built up over the years. And, uh, Patty, thanks for taking me, Kyle. Appreciate the time, Peter. Take care. All the best. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, time for the news. Plymouth Force is in the queue to talk about Crown Lands, and there's an airstrip in Bot. What he wants to talk about? Greg Smith uh, may be running in the upcoming by-election in Ward 4 here in the city of St. John's. Ian Froud stepping down immediately from that post. And Roy's in the queue to talk about seals. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. I've got some scone in my throat. Uh, so I sent a photo from uh, Cornerbrook, what they call Cornerbrook Hill. There's a motor vehicle accident. Emergency responders are on the scene. Looks like traffic is going to be blocked for a while, so judge yourself accordingly. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Playman Forsey. Good morning, Playman, and you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, I did want to uh, talk about a couple of uh, items, of course, but uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about the uh, airstrip on the uh, Botwood Highway, certainly off Route 350. This airstrip, Patty, is used by the air ambulance uh, to transport patients from the uh, Central Newfoundland Regional Healthcare Centre. And now the snow clearing for that certainly is done by the province, but with the schedule and sometimes the resources, you know, there are lots of times when this is not done. You know, which means the air ambulance can't land, or uh, or which leads to the uh, patient there to be tra- tra- be transport transported to Gander for for the air ambulance. You know, and uh, in an emergency situation, Patty, every minute counts. 
you know, and of course with the impending 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 weather hol- uh, coming up, you know, and and holidays coming, you know, this certainly raises concerns, you know. So what exactly is the concern, uh, Pleman? Uh, well, the uh, the airstrip is not always plowed. Uh, oh, it's not always plowed. Okay, I just uh, want to make sure I understood. Yeah, and I've uh, I've already heard of a situation with this so far this season. You know, so it's uh, that certainly raises concerns with, with that. You know, and if if that uh, airstrip was probably contracted, you know, it probably would be maintained properly. You know, in times when uh, when you need the air ambulance to be landing there, especially in emergency situations. Fair enough. So it's provincial responsibility, which means that a plow that would normally be plowing the roads would have to go and plow the runway. Yes, it is, yeah. And okay. I understand, of course, you know, uh, public public safety is priority, and on the road certainly has to be done, and, and that is priority. But uh, maybe if that airstrip was uh, contracted, you know, it certainly would... Uh, would uh, take take the ease off off the uh, transportation and make it uh, more maintained for the for the airstrip. Fair enough. And the other one, Patty, I, I did read the story, of course, of the diamonds in in, in news article. You know, and, I, and I'm glad to see that uh, that they've uh, settled and uh, and moved on. I guess with uh, with what they wanted to do in the first place. But uh, Patty, it's a shame, you know, that they became the poster child for Crown Lands. You know, through, through no fault of their own. Well, three years later and $10,000. Well, at least $10,000 because that's the settlement between themselves and the government. And, of course, lawyer Greg French will have a bill, rightfully so, for the legal work that he did. So it just seems to me that we're overcomplicating something. And I'm not, I'm not pretending that Crown Lands is so fundamental that I could go in and spend a half hour uh, amending the, uh, the act. I'm not saying that. But the policy needs to be in the best interest of the people. And at this point, it obviously is not. Well, Patty, you know, there, there's still uh, lots of people out there in, in the same predicament, you know, wh- probably whether they know it or not, you know, and uh, a lot of them are afraid to come forward because of the frustrations, you know, created by Crown Lands, especially the cost. And, uh, you know, we tried to alleviate some of that, you know, this year. I, I, again, I'll go back to the PMR this spring. You know, we did bring in a PR, PMR. Well, we wanted some uh, some legislation brought into the House of Assembly uh, to address the Crown Lands issues. I asked the minister twice in uh, in the House of Assembly, and the only answer he gave me was stay tuned. You know, and that's unfortunate, Patty, you know, that the Liberal government uh, still refuses to discuss the land, uh, Crown Land situation. It really is, you know, and we've made reference to your private member's resolution in the past, even if there had been a commitment to build on it. If it was not perfect in the eyes of the government, so be it, because there's probably nothing perfect when we have a starting uh, conversation. But no, even just the willingness to say, we acknowledge that this is broken, whether because, you know, it starts with the fact that we've got two different arms that are part of one issue, unlike every other province in the country. Then we've got the unbeknownst to people and how difficult it is to have an affidavit to prove that the land was occupied for 20 years prior to 1976, which apparently the Diamonds had plenty of affidavits to exactly that effect, and they were rejected by the government. So let's go. Let's figure this out. Adam Furlong painted a pretty clear picture. If you know, if you just use round number, 10,000, having to go through the same thing, are we really thinking it's in the province's best interest for individuals and or the economy to see $100 million go to the provincial government versus being spent throughout moving and buying new stuff? And, uh, you know, because we're the economy. The government's not the economy. Uh, Pleman, final thought to you, sir, before we have to take another call. No, Patty, it's just that, uh, you know, we need to certainly see some uh, legislation come in to address those problems. And, uh, you know, for someone to, uh, you know, own their their land, maintain their land, uh, you know, keep it up for over over 40 years, you know, it's uh, it's, uh, disrespectful for for the people that's doing that. Appreciate the time, Pleeman. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Pleeman Forsey, he's the PC member for Exploits. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Greg Smith. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing great, thanks. How about you? 
I'm doing well. Um, as you might have seen yesterday, I'm going to put my name in the ring to run for the Ward 4 by-election as um, Ian Froud is uh, stepping down from council. And uh, wanted to come out early, wanted to kind of just let people know that I'm looking forward to hearing from them, hearing about more of the issues in the ward. Um, I did live in the ward in my teenage years, in my early 20s, so I know some of the issues firsthand. I know traffic calming is a huge issue, especially for Kemount Terrace. Um, we were just talking about on the news there about Gladstone and Seaborne, and uh, yeah, and the accidents up there. Huge issue, and also I think transit is one that uh, is, is a big one as well. I'm a transit user in the city. Route uh, 2 goes right along um, Ward 4, and uh, now more than ever with the ridership up, I'm seeing just so many people on the bus and standing on the bus. Um, so hopefully that will be resolved. You know, I think frequency of routes are a huge thing for the city, um, and I think that um, it would be good to see more of that happening. Tricky time to get involved because we just saw the most recent budget. Property taxes going up by an average of th- uh, 13%. So d- any consideration as to some of the tricky times that the city is facing regarding financial responsibility of the taxpayer? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a couple ways. I know in, when I ran at large, it's my third time running for city council. Um, you know, I don't I don't quite care if it's if it's popular or not or who I kind of upset with it. But I think the business realty tax allowance talked about this numerous times. I think that uh, if we reformed that or even eradicated it, I think that could really free up a few million dollars in tax revenue to the city. Um, obviously, as, as stated prior, we know my sense on mile one or Mary Brown Center. Uh, and I think that the subsidy for that is, is far too high. I think that we should be finding other ways to, you know, be more efficient without looking to the pocketbooks of residents. I think that, I think those are two ways. I think there's probably other ways as well. I know times are tough. Inflation is real for both cities and for um, for residents alike. But uh, I think that there could be some other ways. And I think that should be the last resort. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it was, but... Uh, I think that these are some other ways that we can probably free up a few million dollars. Yeah, and I mean, in this case, you know, the big bulk of the increase in the city budget is about replacing garbage collection infrastructure, Mm -hmm. snow clearing, and ice management. To me, and I'm not intimately involved in the day-to-day, obviously, but I don't know if we've done a very good job in fleet management because it shouldn't come in all one big felt swoop like it feels like it's coming this year. Um, I, I missed what, what you, you said there at the beginning. It's fleet management. You know, we got to replace all these garbage trucks and snow plow yeah. equipment and ice yeah. management equipment. It feels like we maybe didn't pay enough attention to fleet management because now it feels like more than ever in years past, we've got so many that need to be replaced all at one time. Totally. I, I totally agree with that. I think that uh, finding ways to kind of a lot for that a bit better, that's certainly one of them. I know that... Um, even to go back to the bus thing, you know, there's money that comes out of the city. It has to go to repairs for buses, for new buses. And uh, sometimes that comes, you know, in one kind of uh, big sum. So if it was spread out a bit better, I think it wouldn't be as much of a shocker uh, when it happens, you know, one year, like this year in particular for fleet management for um, garbage disposal, et cetera. So I think that that's huge. Yeah, 100%. So I believe Ian Froud's last official day is tomorrow. So do we have any idea what the timeline required for calling a by-election? Um, I believe it is within 90 days. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I'm almost certain of that. I'm pretty certain of that. So I wanted to come out uh, early before Christmas, uh, which I thought was Im- imperative. But, um, yeah, I think it would, my gut is saying, I'm thinking around March, but uh, the city is yet to 
announce that and uh, I'm, I'm eagerly waiting for a date but uh, regardless of the date I will be on the ballot I appreciate the time this morning Greg and good luck Thank you so much. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays uh, and a Happy New Year to all the viewers and yourself too. Thank you very much on the very same shoe. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Greg French, who's a lawyer that we've mentioned regarding the Crown Lands issue. Roy's next to talk about the seals. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Quick traffic note. There's been a two-car collision at the intersection of Newfoundland Drive and Logie Bay Road. As emergency responders are on the scene, there's going to be some slowdown. So there you go. Let's go to line number four. Roy, you're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? That's kind, thank you. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Well, I called to ramble a bit of the seals again, I guess. I just came in from doing my daily work on the ocean, whatever, and I see 17 this morning. That's, a, that's more than we usually see, and uh, four of them are harps, which you don't see until April month, so that'll tell you what the, what, what the damage they're doing. It's unmistakable. You know, it's always been remarkable to me that TFO considers uh, seals in the St. Lawrence a problem, but not seals off our coast. How does that work? And the DFO, I won't say it was on my mind now because I'll, I'll, I'll be barred from 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 <laughs> DFO and the federal government don't give a, a, a good you know what about uh, about the seals. It's, you know, it, it's all it's all politics. Like you know the. the the stock, the state of the three PS stock now is gone. Just want to have a, I won't say just want to have a close. Well, they could give you enough to eat. Like I got six thousand pound this year to catch now. What's the good of six thousand pound by the time you take your expenses out and pay your crew and insurance, whatnot? You know, it's just, it's the same old, same old thing. Uh, so I'm thinking about his name there now. Uh, J, uh, Small, uh, Clifford Small. I, I, he's I like the member for Costa Bay's Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah, I like to call him his jib, like father used to say. Like you know, but this, uh, like I said before, it don't seem like does anyone listen? Uh, the union has got uh, Dr. Aaron Crothers, I think is her name now, a senior fishery scientist. And you know, um, God love her, but uh, we're the scientists, us fishermen, to see what's going on every day. But you know, you try to get someone to come out with me and and, and prove my point, like you know, it's it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, so then we just had a SEAL summit, and we're still trying to figure it out. But, I mean, I just don't get it. I suppose it's probably always going to be the case that unless we, you know, it's one thing, it's either the cart in front of the horse or vice versa. So we either find a market and increase the quota because we're not even taking the quota now. Why? Because it's hard to find a market for the product, and you're not getting nothing for it. So when, by the time you back out expenses, include the safety issues, it's just not worth it. So if we can maybe get some sensible revisit of decisions made, for instance, in the European Union. We had that chance when we had them all here with the Canada-EU summit. And they say, oh, no, no, it's working fine because we got these uh, indigenous exemptions, of which there's only two groups in the country that fall into that. So consequently, we're not selling any seals, first and last, indigenous or non, to the European Union. And they've made their decision based on absolute 100% lies. Yeah, like seal oil capsules. Oh, Jesus! When they come out, my son, man, it's a cure for all, eh? You know, but uh, I don't, I don't even see that advertised anymore. Uh, you know, I, I, I probably calls in every couple. I just get so frustrated with it. Like I go out and I see those big old, big old harp seals. They're anywhere from. 150, 300, 400, 500, 800 pounds. I don't know what the correct weight is, but they're big. But I can guarantee you now, you know, they're they're eating lots. Of, they're not, not just codfish. They're like the, the bay is full of herring now, of course. Presentia Bay, they come, the herring come in, right? They're, they're eating everything in their path, you know, and... and it's the same old, same old thing, and I, I well, see a capital C U L L. I hope that Greenpeace or whoever's listening, call yes, call the. I wouldn't say it, old man. I, I, I. I, I 
I, I'm, I'm really fl- frustrated. I'm, I'm showing you hear my voice. Like, I see this every day. I'm underwater 300-something days a year, and I see those damn things doing, you know, doing what they like. You know, we got no rights. Uh, uh, this is the, the, the worst time that the 3PS stock was ever been. Like, it's in the critical state. Like, you know, I wasn't, you know, and the, the seals would eat away at it. And I'd say next year, if we're lucky, we'll have a 1,000, 2,000 pounds to catch. That's a, that's a sad thing to be able to say, isn't it? Yeah, and the word call is brought forward all the time. At some point, the population density of seals is going to create their own disease problem for themselves, which is quite likely. And, you know, when we talk about the fact that the ecosystem can manage itself, is that true? I mean, I know that's the ultimate hope, but when we talk about biodiversity or the lack thereof, some of that is based on human intervention. It always has been. So I don't know if there's ever going to be a politician that says, look, suppose we just take the omega-3 oil and we burn the rest. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a million seals this year. No one's going to say that, though, are they? Penny, Penny, uh, I'd say... I, I don't know, an educator. I'd say 30% of the world is starving to death. You take the nutrition that's in, you know, the omega that's in, in, in seal meat, like, you know, can that and ship it out. I, you know, I'm not saying that's the answer, but, like, this, this is terrible, by like, you know, to, to, to see what's going on, and it seems like nobody gives a, you know. That's how it certainly feels, Roy. No argument coming from me. Uh, I appreciate the time, even though you're frustrated. Yeah, all right, buddy. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll, I'll probably call back in another couple of months. Nothing, any, any exchange. Anyway, Patty, have a Merry Christmas, buddy, you and your listeners. Same to you, Roy. All the best. Hey, hey buddy. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Clarenville Bass, a lawyer. That's Greg French. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So it's been a long three years for the Diamonds and for yourself as their legal representative. How did they arrive? Was it based on your advice or they just said, threw their hands in the air and said, it's not worth it anymore. Let's just give them the 10 grand and be done with it. How did it work? Well, there's only so much I can say because it did arrive through settlement. But I will say it was a, an 11th hour resolution to the matter. And ultimately, when you factor in what the cost of buying it and having certainty was versus you know, paying me to go to a trial for two days, subpoenaing witnesses, going through all that. You know, you can pay the same amount of money for a guaranteed outcome, or you can pay the same amount for a flip of the coin. And any any ethical lawyer would recommend you take the certain thing. Uh, I don't know if you can answer this question. Was it an offer made by you or a price point put forward by government? Uh, that would uh, that number came from government. Okay. Fair enough. So what would you like to say about the issue this morning? Because, you know, it's really extraordinary. This has been an issue for decades, but it took an intriguing uh, story like the Diamonds to bring this focus back on the issue. So what do you you want to talk about this morning? Well, Patty, I mean, as as was noted in the the article, I've got 11 other cases like this myself that are still uh, wending their way through the system, and all of it hinges on a law that everybody agrees doesn't work and, quite frankly, is a policy failure. I mean, right now we have a system where the government is coming after people who are trying to do things right. Like, there, there's no proactive enforcement. I mean, any argument that the law in its current form is protecting Crown lands is completely transparently wrong. And I know that because there's no active enforcement. If you look at the Crown Lands map, 
nobody's going out there and actively enforcing the quote-unquote illegal builds on Crown lands. No one is out there trying to force people to do things right. The only people who are getting caught in the dragnet are people who genuinely believe they own their homes and are not expecting any problems. If they expected a problem, they'd know better than to raise their heads and try and fix it. Uh, Greg, I'm interested in this one particular issue. You know, we're talking about if uh, if the applicant can prove that the land was occupied for 20 years uninterruptedly prior to 1976, then that's one of the ways that you can indeed get the land from Crown Lands. But the Diamonds and yourself had affidavits in hand. The government refused to accept them. Are they suggesting that the affidavits were signed by people who were lying, or what's the problem there? The problem in this particular case, and of course the Diamonds have authorized me to speak to this point, uh, the land, we've traced the land back to as early as 1918. The Catalina Town Plan, done by the colonial government of Newfoundland, shows the ownership of that land and the dimensions of it and the survey of it. That was in 1918. The deeds go from that landowner in 1918 to his three children, who then sold to Mr. Uh, Mrs. Diamond's father. The only sin in all of it is that three children lived in Ontario in the 1960s. So in terms of the use and occupation of the land, there was a dispute that from 1965 to 1977, the owners of it lived in Ontario. It was fenced. It was still, there's still visual evidence that the land was occupied, but, oh, the owners lived away for 12 years, tough luck. It's just remarkable to me. What role do you think the fact that people have paid property tax should be when we evaluate who owns the land or how we quiet the title? Well, that goes to the legitimacy of it, because those are people who've come forward, who've put their money where their mouth is, who are paying a level of government to you know, prove their ownership of it. They genuinely believe it. No scofflaws are going to the town hall and saying, I own this, please charge me property tax. Please charge me $2,000 a year for my house. The only people who are doing that are the ones who honestly believe they own it. And the people who are getting hit by this are, by and large, seniors, because they're the ones who bought their land at a time when, when things were less formal. There were no banks. You built your own house. And everybody in the community recognized the ownership. Everybody in the community accepted it. No one caused any grief. And it's only now that people are selling it for significant amounts of money, where banks are getting involved and mortgages are getting involved, that you run into these problems because all of a sudden the handshake deal from the 60s isn't worth what it used to be. You know, Bank of Montreal won't give you $200,000 without some proof that you actually own what you say you own. No, stands to reason. So I don't know if government's ever going to acknowledge that, you know, this is a broken system and here's how we can fix it. It doesn't need to be, you know, sometimes the politics just trumps a bit of common sense here. Because the resolution was brought forward by a member of the opposition, they'll reject it. So I wonder and I hope that the political will is there in the spring sitting, because even if they bring forward some proposed amendments to the legislation, and then we can have a debate on the floor of assembly, and then we can have conversations on this program as to whether or not the amendments proposed are actually going to fix the system. Because sometimes it feels to me like unless government is leading the charge for meaningful change, they're going to reject any input from opposition members, which is simply just the partisanship of the, the issue versus good policy. And the problem we've got here is that this isn't in any way a partisan issue. It isn't. It's one that both sides of the aisle can agree there's a problem. Even in the debate on uh, Mr. Forsey's private members bill back in May, the government side was acknowledging, yes, there's a problem. Yes, we need to fix it. And then it got voted down. And 
you know, I, and I'm, I don't want to see make it seem like there is a silver bullet solution because any solution does have some drawbacks. Any any amnesty solution is going to allow a few scoff laws through, but at the end of the day, the system is so far gone. You know, the government truly has to pick a lane here. Either we're going to go out and enforce the Crown Lands Map as it appears today, which you know, all of Bonavista, all of Carbonear, CBS, Portugal Cove, St. Phillips for Mr. Hutton's district. You know, large swaths of these areas are all apparently crown lands and you know either the law is what it is and we're going to go out and enforce it or we're going to stand back and let people continue to quote unquote illegally occupy it or we're just going to accept that this is occupied people are on it we'll go straight and we'll stop everything going forward but we'll make sure that everything up to today is standardized because that's really what needs to, what we what it needs to be. It's either that or we're going to have a mammoth undertaking of trying to sort out every single person's legitimate ownership by a standard that's 50 years old. It's mind-boggling and head-scratching. I appreciate the time, Greg. Anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, nothing on that matter, but I uh, just want to wish uh, you and your listeners and everybody at VOCM Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. The very same to you, Greg, and we appreciate your time. Thank you, Pat. You take good care. Bye-bye. That's Greg French, one of our go-to voices on Crown Lands. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show where Brian wrapped up the newscast, talk about the conditions here on the East Coast. On the West Coast, Michael is saying that the road conditions of Corner Brook have deteriorated quickly. Lewin Parkway is treacherous. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of St. John South, Mount Pearl. He's the Minister of Labor and Seniors, Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Let's start with the dental plan. So, yeah. you know, we just had a story earlier last week talking about the fact that life expectancy has dropped in the country, notably in this province. So how was the age of 87 selected? It feels like we're going to attend to very few of the 9 million uh, Canadians that are going to be able to take advantage of this program. No, no, that only matters. That only uh, lasts for a couple of weeks, to be honest with you. The, the idea is that we will have uh, every senior uh, registered coming into the month of May, um, and then by May, June, we will have seniors in dental chairs. So this is just a matter of registering people, and we just started at 87. That only lasts a couple of weeks, and it reduced to 80, then it reduced to 75, then it reduces to 70. And um, you know, we just want to make sure that we get people registered as quickly as possible. We don't want to gum up the works. Uh, you know, we've learned those lessons, uh, you know, when we've rolled out government programs, particularly during COVID when we were overcome. Um, so, you know, this is this is just a matter of registering people, uh, you know, like getting on a plane, you get zone six, zone five, zone four, zone three, that sort of thing. So uh, th- that's all that is. We wouldn't read anything into it. They made a lot of it online and stuff, but no, there's nothing to it. How's the application even going to work? So you're going to get a letter from the government inviting you to apply, but then how do I do it? So you, you, what you'll get is you'll get the letter, and that was really important because we're starting with seniors. And while I you know, recognize that there's a lot of seniors out there quite adept at being online, we recognize you couldn't beat an old-fashioned letter. The letter tells you what phone number to call. You call that number, and uh, it, you know, it, it tells you what ID you need, usually just one or, you know, piece of, a, of government ID. Uh, once you're registered, then uh, you, you, kind of, you, get a, you get a code, um, and, you get a, and you get a package in the mail that's pretty much what you would get if you were, you know, were, like a lot of people do. You get dental through your, through your company, your employer, whether it be uh, private sector or government or whatever. 
uh, that lays out everything that you're that you're entitled to. And so you'll get that package as well. Uh, and it'll tell you then, you know, call, go ahead, call a dental clinic, uh, call your hygienist um, and, and get going. And like I said, our, our objective then is to have uh, people sitting down in the dental chair for dental care. And we're talking, you know, running the gamut, whether it be surgery or cavities or, or, or partial dentures or whatever. Um, that'll come May, June. What do we know about the capacity out there in the dental world? Will every clinic be obliged to take, uh, take these uh, uh, parcel patients? So we're working with a lot of clinics right across the province now. We've had, um, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of them want to make sure that they have the capacity in order to be able to take patients. Uh, Most members of the dental community are are welcoming of this because, uh, you know, dentists, they're doctors in the sense that they, you know, they want to make people better and they recognize that there's a real need out there among seniors. We also realize that there's a capacity issue too. We're going to, you know, we're going to have a greater need, I think, for dental professionals uh, and we're going to have to meet that need as well but right now they have been excellent to deal with how did we arrive at canada life with a 750 million dollar contract to administer the program uh it was done in a process through uh minister johnny duclos who uh you know had it was no call of bids and and uh and canada life uh won that bid um and uh so i don't know much about the about the process other than went through the due process and making sure that we had somebody who had the capacity to handle it so just for clarification if i make a net family income ninety thousand dollars or less and at seventy thousand dollars or less no copay can i use the the canada national dental care program if i have private insurance if my employer has insurance is there a double up available here or is it only for people who do not have insurance no, it's for people who don't have insurance. If you've already got it, it's good for you. Is there a cap on how much I can have spent on my dental health throughout the course of a year? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. If there's a need, then it's filled. So every, work, every bit of work that can be done and you can get an appointment, it will be covered by this plan? Yeah, preventative, diagnostic, restorative, endodontic, prosthodontic. Okay. Periodontic, yeah, all of it. I'd like to move off now to the new regulations brought forward regarding uh, the Office of Environment and Climate Change and some of the issues regarding electric vehicles and the targets been set. So 20% of all cars, SUVs, crossovers, light-duty pickups uh, sold by automakers, zero emissions by 26, 60% by 30, and 100% by 35. So that's one thing, and I don't necessarily understand the credits and how that's going to uh, impact the price point because for, for some, that's the reason why they're not buying an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. My question is different. My question is about the grid. So we know now that the grid is the provincial responsibility. You know, with the demand, whether it be population growth, we'll get to that in a second as well, but this mm-hmm. seems like a relatively quick transition. We're already looking in this province about the supply forecast uh, demand by the 2050 to double in this province. Does the federal government have a role in ensuring that grids are up to the task put forward by federal mandates? Yes, I think we do, because I think it's in the national interest to do that. I mean, the grids themselves are in provincial jurisdiction. That's clear. Uh, And I know that, having been schooled in it by various natural resources ministers, uh, provincially and territorially, when I was natural resources minister. But uh, do we have, I think, a a national responsibility to make sure that those grids work efficiently, that we work with provinces and territories to make sure that they have the capital in order to be able to upgrade them? Um, I I absolutely. Uh, And is there, you know, a role for us, particularly in interties, which is something that, you know, we were looking at um, both with the Atlantic Loop and out west, tying uh, Manitoba together with uh, Saskatchewan, tying Alberta together with British Columbia. 
British Columbia and Manitoba both being uh, great providers of hydroelectricity, Saskatchewan um, and uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta both needing that kind of electricity. So, yeah, I think that we have a responsibility there. Um, you know, electrification and getting a national grid that can handle that sort of capacity, I think, is uh, one of the top priorities that we have. And in fact, well, one of the responsibilities that the prime minister gave me during the last cabinet shuffle, uh, very quietly, uh, and it's got a pretty obscure title, uh, is that I am the chair of the ministerial working group on regulatory efficiency and clean growth, which is a lot of syllables and words, but basically means we got to get stuff built and and we got to we got to streamline the red tape, we got to cut it, uh, we streamline process, get rid of duplication, and get stuff built. And one of the one of the things that's on the top of that list is further electrification of the grid. So the Supreme Court has dealt a couple of losses of the federal government. One regarding plastics being branded as toxic and waste managers is pretty much a provincial responsibility. Then let's talk mm-hmm. about federal overreach and other matters of provincial responsibility. So does that mean that we can indeed see an east-west grid, a tariff-free flow of power? Because we've been long held captive by Central Canada, Quebec notably. So will we see an east coast uh, power grid? Um, you know, you, you could someday. I'm not sure how quickly we'll get there. But certainly if you talk about those interties that you know further connect, let's say, Newfoundland, uh, the island of Newfoundland with the Maritimes, that further connect Labrador with Quebec, you know, you look at Ontario and, and, and maybe funneling more power from Quebec to Ontario. And then you look out west of those inner ties I was talking about in the prairies. You know, ultimately what you are talking about is a national grid. Uh, it's the same way that the Americans are going, too. They're putting a huge focus on further electrification and upgrading their grids. Our, our grids, from what I uh, recall, uh, are in far better shape, I think, than the Americans are. But we also have to prepare those grids and those transmission lines um, for, I think, stormier weather ahead because of, uh, you know, climate change and the way things are happening. Um, so we had a lot of work ahead of us, but would that be an end goal? Yes, it would, because it would make a lot of sense. And the more that you can move power from point A to point B, the more you can make sure that your power gets a better price. Um, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, we still we need to improve technology so that we insulate wires better and lose less power along the way. I remember working on uh, the Lower Churchill proposal uh, that Brian Tobin had back when I was a young buck. And uh, the biggest the biggest cost, the biggest prices um, for, for, you know, Gull Island at the time uh, was definitely in transmission. Transmission is still the biggest expense. Uh, it's still a big issue. The perfect storm of building homes, expanding the electrical grid and all the like. I'm not even sure we have the skilled trades on the ground at this moment in time to, to deal with it all concurrently, which I think is going to be a problem. I'd mm-hmm. like to know your thoughts on why the federal government is so hesitant to pump the brakes and revisit the population, or pardon me, the immigration targets, the impact on housing and healthcare and the grid, all those three combined make for an issue. Nobody wants to come to the country to be unable to find a doctor, unable to find a place to live. Mm-hmm. So why would the government not just acknowledge the fact that maybe we got out over our skis a little bit here, maybe we had really aggressive targets that might sound good when we talk about societal issues and or economic upside, but it's really creating a bigger problem than necessary to deal with. So why not look at those numbers? Uh, you're talking about immigration numbers oh, yeah. and capacity to absorb them. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 I would say that that's a huge priority for us right now. Um, uh, not just Minister Miller, but, you know, we're all working hand in glove on this. Uh, you know, we know demographically, you know, I'd say, I say to, to ministers and, and MPs from other parts of the country, if you want to take a look into the future, look at Newfoundland and Labrador, because we are where a lot of the country is going to be in 10 years' time. Fully 50% of our population is, is 50 plus, and a quarter of our population is 65 plus. 
um, and and that has a real effect on our workforce. Uh, so so you know we we have felt like if we bring people in, that is going to help with labor capacity. We need more people, and I I don't doubt that. And you know what? We're blessed to live in a country where, frankly, uh, immigration is not seen as a as a hot button issue. People understand and know that we need it, and a lot of us benefited from the fact that we came to this country because of it. But having said that, do we have to work on the balance to make sure that we house people that we get that when they get here? Do we have to make sure that we're, we're looking for what we need right now, which is skilled trades, I think is a, you know, an excellent point on that one? Yeah, we do. And, and that is going to require us being less myopic. Um, you know, in the decisions that we make in the federal government, but I would argue with any government, you should be less myopic and people should be working together. Our crowd are working together hand in glove on this issue right now. I mean, I, I'd say most cabinet meetings, cabinet committee meetings that I, I go to, you will see either, you know, Mr. Miller and Mr. Fraser hand in glove, really. Uh, helps, of course, that uh, uh, Minister Fraser is a former uh, Minister of Immigration. He knows the file, too. So you're going to see those two departments and those two ministers work uh, very, very closely because I, I agree that we got to get that right. And, and one cannot work without the other. So just in summary, should there be a very careful focus on skilled trade incentives or people that are, are skilled, whether it be in the tech sector or the skilled trades, banging hammers or electricians or pipe fitters or what have you, and everyone else be just kind of hauled off until we can get our, get our house in order a little bit, have a place to live, have enough doctors for everybody, have the pressure on the grid relieved until we can get it right, because currently it just doesn't feel we're like we're getting it right. I'm pro-immigration. I take my knocks for it, but I stand by it. But I do think we are just getting a little ahead of ourselves. So should we pump the brakes here? Um, I think that we can continue to be, you know, we, we can look at it and make sure that we're smart about the, the people who we're bringing in. There are, there are a lot of people who we bring in, too, that, you know, uh, family reunion and reunification is, is extremely important for a lot of people. And by the way, it has a side economic benefit often of, uh, of aunts, uncles or grandparents being able to provide child care to people and freeing up uh, the parents of the home to do all the work that they need to do. So, I mean, there are great economic benefits to some things that you may not necessarily think of at first blush. Um, I think that you know we we understand the need for particularly for more skilled trades but we could also do a better job within the country to make sure that we make the most of skilled trades within the country so you know we have a lot of work to do with provinces and territories and the ability to move labor from point a to point b um, we kind of you know take it for granted a bit because we've had a fairly good experience of the newfoundlanders and labradorans going back and forth skilled trades um to the oil sands and back and forth that is not always the case with a lot of professional agencies um we've been putting a lot of pressure uh uh, on those agencies, and we've been working with provinces and territories, because frankly, it has gotten to that point where this long-standing issue—this is not new—but um, this long-standing issue is one that everybody recognizes. We got to work on, including provincial levels. I don't pay much attention to the polls, but I knew I know politicians and their various parties do. Given the drop in popularity numbers for the prime minister, who I know is a personal friend of yours, and I know there's probably some goings on in caucus meetings and/or cabinet meetings. Is the Prime Minister the right person to lead your party into the next general election? And if so, why? Because if you say yes, it flies in the face of the polls. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't make that sweeping generalization. We're all obsessed with the polls. I'm not obsessed with the polls. I I'm not at all, that. personally. I, I, I will, you know, I'll pay attention to them. I'm far, I get far more from, you know, living here 
being here and talking to people here because um, you get a much fuller picture and people are very honest with me because I find that most times, especially when we talk about politics, Newfoundlanders are very honest and Labradorians too when I'm there. Um, so, I, But I understand it. Look, you know, there is there is a natural tendency. I think we picked it up maybe possibly from the Americans, you know, at, at eight years the president's gone. So, you know, there's this feeling like, okay, we have been in eight years. I recognize that. The, the conservatives keep repeating it and it's a valid point. Uh, he is the guy to do it. Uh, I believe that because I think he's the one with, with the energy and with the breadth of, of knowledge to do it. Uh, he's still got it. He's still got that energy for it. He still has that passion for this country. Um, he has had a political career where he has been constantly underestimated, and he is always at his best when he's up against the ropes. Um, so I, you know, right now his newfound energy, uh, you know, we went through that old foolishness of this vote-a-thon where, you know, you went 30 hours straight, no sleep and all that. It's just ridiculous and a ridiculous way for members of parliament or a parliament itself to behave. But anyway, you know, he sat through all of it. He went home once, he put the kids to school and got a shower and then came back. Uh, you know, Polyev was nowhere to be seen. He started the foolishness and, he, you know, he wouldn't be around to finish it when he realized we were all there and we were more than going to play along. We were going to fight back. Um, there's a, there's still very much a fighting spirit in our party and still lots that we feel we can be doing. Uh, we have not slowed down. There is no lack of energy and there's no lack of ambition. But, you know, you got to earn people's votes. Uh, I don't blame them for saying, oh, boy, I wouldn't mind entertaining a change. And I would say, well, take a look at that change and look at it very carefully. And in the meantime, I think we have to prove ourselves that we are capable of uh, continuing on the great progress that we've made in this country. But we have to make the case. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Always good. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Seamus O'Regan. He's the Minister of Labour and Seniors, the member of St. John South Mount Pearl. Last break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Final word goes to line number five. Good morning, Connie Kennedy. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Hi. I'm with Heavenly Creatures, and I I just felt like calling this morning um, because we're having our Christmas pet food and donation drive. Yep. And our donations and suffer down fifty percent this year. Um, so, right? in speaking with Jessica recently, I know that you're doing okay for dry dog food, but just about everything else you need. Wet food, dry food for cat um, litter. We could always use more, but we're, we're good. Um, the monetary donations are down. Um, so we're just putting another plea out. Um, so you say the monetary donations are down. I think you described them as down in half. So what would be a normal annual contribution uh, money-wise? I'm not sure. Um, I should have asked Jessica that. Um, but I just know that we're, we're down, and I was on CBC this morning, too. So... Um, I feel bad. I should know that. Well, it, it's not a problem. I'm just curious because I know some charities I work with, and our numbers are way off. But you know, that's only because I have an intimate working knowledge of how much we target annually and when we come up short. So you know, when we think about issues like the food bank, we very often, most often, think about the human food bank. But costs for pet owners have increased, just like everything else under the sun. The charities and not-for-profits like yourselves, they've seen donations wane or decrease over the course of the year. So when you're thinking about where to put a donation. If you've got a soft spot in your heart for animals as a pet lover or an animal lover, maybe Heavenly Creatures is the place for you. Thank you. We're open um, today for the next three days or four days. 
um, 12 to 4 and 6 to 9 today, 12 to 8 on Saturday, and 10 to 1 on Sunday. And where are you? Um, 292 Lamar. Well, let's hope that what you need, you get, and you see coming in the door, because I know the vet bills are enormous as well for uh, organizations like yourself. So, Connie, anything else you'd like to say? Um, heavenlycreatures.ca if there's any donations wanting to be made online. I appreciate this. Good luck and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and thank you. You're welcome, Connie. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, there we go. Yeah, As we've mentioned, there's certainly plenty of need and we're all strapped a little bit right i know folks are most folks are generous by nature and want to help but as we've seen some people who were once donors to the food banks are now patrons of the food bank so things have changed pretty dramatically but if you can give i know you will all right final check in on the twitter we're vocm open line follow us there suggestions there comments there email address is open line at vocm.com but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk tomorrow morning for our last show of 2023. Bye-bye.